This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Anthony Johnston. And I'm Brian Latendry, and today we are talking about the fourth studio album from Faith No More, 1992's Angel Dust. Mm, which most people probably consider as their second album, actually, I would think, because most people really only got them into them in the, the pattern era with the real thing, didn't they? Agreed. Yes, at least from my perspective and my remembrance of my awareness of them back in the day, for sure. Yeah, yeah, I think most people only became aware of them, as I say, with the Real Thing album, uh, which is a shame because, you know, those early albums, there's some there's some good stuff on them. Um, you know, Chuck Mosley did do some good work with them, but uh, there you go. Um, before we get into that, let's leave that till uh, later. Let's not. Let's try not to get sidetracked <laughs> talking mm, about the album before we talk order. about the album, as we often so often do. Uh, this is, we will just point out, this is our listener choice episode for this volume. So this album was uh, nominated by Jonathan Moore, who is one of our Patreon supporters. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. Uh, yeah, I, huge thank you. But yeah, not the only Faith No More album that was uh, nominated, actually. A couple of people did also nominate The Real Thing, but it was this particular nomination that got selected. So that's why we're doing Angel Dust. Um, so yeah, thank you for that. Thank you to all our patrons. If you want to join them, if you're not a Patreon supporter yet, you can go to patreon.com slash thrash it out and uh, support the show. And you get to take part then in things like nominating albums for the listener choice and the uh, encore albums that we also do now and take part in our backstage pass episodes, um, which uh, we've already, we did one so far this volume, didn't we? We haven't done the second one yet. I believe you are correct, sir. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So, as, again, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you to everybody who nominated uh, in the poll, but that is why we are doing this album. We also have a, a new patron since that last episode, Andrew Fitzgerald. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. Welcome. Um, and so, well, let's talk about the last episode before we get on to, because I, I have a discussion topic <laughs> that I want to bring up for uh, sort of holiday cheer as it were. But let's talk about the last episode first. Okay, so let's talk about Rammstein. We talked about Mudder for Rammstein. our last episode, and that was mid-October that we talked about them. Um, lots of great comments, as usual. Actually, on that note, I should just quickly put jump in and say, yeah, apologies to everybody for taking so long to get for getting round to recording this episode. It is entirely on me. I've just had a a whole ton of stuff like the ideal day to have done it would have been thanksgiving but of course that was thanksgiving <laughs> so kind of difficult to arrange recording and then afterwards i just got a ton of work stuff dropped on me and uh i just haven't been able to i've only just crawled my way out from under it so massive apologies to everybody for taking what was it like more than two months i think <laughs> since we recorded the last episode sorry about that well, I know we said we weren't going to digress in this episode, but let's also uh, acknowledge that... Oh, the, we're, we're going to digress, yeah, just not... Yeah. The, <laughs> the amazing work stuff that you have going on, including the announcement of a brand new Cozy Mystery series, which I want to congratulate you on, because I I actually... I know we joked about how, you know, you thought that some people might think that's not a great fit for you. I think that is a perfect fit for you, and I'm very excited about that. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it is funny. It's uh, for listeners. It's called The Dog Sitter Detective and it starts. Uh, we published the first book next year uh, in 2023. And it's just funny. Yeah, because obviously people, a lot of people know me as either the atomic blonde guy 
or the Dead Space and Resident Evil guy. Uh, and then I pop up and go, hey, I'm going to do a sort of cosy crime murder mystery series about a, an old woman who walks dogs and solves murders. And everybody's like, what? <laughs> but yeah. it's not that, you know. I've done murder mysteries before. I did them in stuff like The Fuse. I've done, you know, sort of more gentler stuff. I did rom-coms, remember, at the start of my career, a couple of graphic novels. So, you know, it's not that unusual. No, no. And I'm I'm looking forward to it. So congrats on all the exciting work stuff that you've had going Bless on you, that you. have uh, caused a slight delay in our otherwise extremely predictable and consistent uh, recording <laughs> schedule. So, uh, <laughs> and I, I just also want to say like, obviously thanks for everybody's patience. Um, you know, especially this time of year, it's there's built in challenges with the holidays and everything else around that kind of stuff. And awesome to see like conversations continuing to happen in the Facebook group. Um, just, you know, it, it, it's great to see that, there's always a forward momentum, even if we don't have an episode out like right. at the moment. It keeps uh, that community alive. For it sure. really, really does. And people have been sharing their end of the year list now. And I encourage anybody who's part of that group, like by all means, go in and, and let us know. Because there's always things that I find on those lists that I either overlooked or maybe didn't even pay attention to at all. And so it's a great time of year for me too. When I get maybe a little time, a couple days off to actually check out some stuff that I missed, it's great to be able to kind of go back there and say like, oh, wow, there's seven albums that I didn't even listen to this year that I can go back and check out. So Agreed. Um, so let's talk about Ramstein. So Charles said, lots of memories here. Mostly Ramstein opened the gates to industrial music for me. And that uh, sauna video clip was captivating for a teenage boy. Strangely, Ramstein seems to have an unlikely fan base outside of your traditional metal crowd. Older women. Both my 70-year-old uh, aunt and a near-retirement-age colleague from Iran have told me that they are diehard fans. Which was <laughs> very just, interesting to hear. I, I just That blows me away. I love it. I love it. But it blows me away. Like, what is it? I mean, other than the fact that sort of, you know... The, a, lot, a few of the guys in Rammstein, Tiller, you know, uh, most of all, are quite sort of like butch, handsome guys. But really, there's got to be more to it than that. <laughs> I mean, theatricality, right? The the, the drama that I guess. this band infuses into everything. Like, it really is um, an experience, right? As opposed to... <laughs> yeah, to yeah. So I could see how people can totally get drawn into that experience. Uh, in sort a way of, that, like other other uh, similar musical um, yeah, bands, I guess don't sort of have that draw. A sort of theatrical phantasmagoria, like going to see Cirque du Soleil or something. Absolutely. Maybe, you know? Yep. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Uh, Ratatesker said about one hour into this episode right now was very excited and just took a long walk to have some time on my own. And by the way, I'll just put to put a pin in that. I love that. People like save us for long walks or car drives or whatever to uh, <laughs> yeah. to just sort of absorb. Uh, my wife, who I didn't even know at the time, saw Ramstein back in '96 uh, here in Madgeburg and still calls the condensed water dripping off. Still recalls the condensed water dripping off the ceiling due to all the heat caused by the fire they produced, even in a relatively small hall. Uh, <laughs> I I think they are so constant in their lineup and focused on the band rather than the individual artists because they grew up in the GDR. I was only nine years old when the wall came down, but they were between eighteen and twenty eight and were brought up in a society that taught you to take your ego back for the sake of society with all the really horrible things that happen in the GDR, and that might just have been the stance under which they managed to keep together. 
That is a very good point. Yeah, very good thought. Uh, Joe said, I need to listen to the album a few more times before hearing your track-by-track discussion, but on your question as to why Ramstein doesn't get more discussed, uh, even though they've been popular for so long, I'm guessing it's partially due to the lyrics being in German. Unlike some metal bands where you can barely understand the lyrics anyway, the vocals are loud and clear on this album, but few of us understand them. There are lots of slower parts where it seems like they want us to understand the lyrics, but most of the metal world doesn't. Some of the songs are so good that it really doesn't matter. To Host, which I think even has an English version, um, and he mentions a couple other songs, uh, for the most of this album, I don't know what they're saying, which makes it feel like I'm missing something. And I wonder if that is something that, uh, you know, more people consider a challenge to that. I think, mm. I think that's one of the, uh, and I can't remember how much we talked about this during the actual episode where we recorded it, but it, to me, it speaks even more to like how powerful their music is that they can draw you in and have that profound effect on you, even though you may not understand any of the actual like lyrical content of the song. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we did talk about that a little because that speaks to Till Lindemann's uh, sort of vocal stylings and the the sort of the drama and the storytelling that he puts into his tone of voice. Like Rammstein have this reputation, probably, you know, unfairly and stereotypically, this reputation of being sort of like, you know, the monotonous, uh, stentorious tones of, you know, like, um, just sort of almost like giving a speech or something, you know, in German, just reciting, uh, this flat, deep vocals. And that's actually not the case at all. You know, I mean, yes, there's some passages like that and some parts like that, but there are many, many places, especially on that album, but in all of their stuff where Till is doing actually something quite different. He's whispering or he's cajoling or he's genuinely singing or you know he's putting on a character voice or and stuff Uh, and he does that a lot and i think that kind of almost acting through voice uh through the through the vocals is one of the things that helps yeah people grab hold of the songs even though they don't understand necessarily the words and what he's actually saying and i think that varied approach is definitely something we're going to talk a lot about today when we talk about oh. <laughs> uh, the album that we'll be uh, that we'll be uh, talking about. Uh, Craig said this was a fun listen. I was thinking uh, I was listening to Ramstein music and singing all and having no idea what he's talking about. You know, making it so intriguing. You can literally make each song about whatever you're feeling. So he uh, he mentioned that, and he had another comment where he talked about them being on the radio. Oh, he said, I remember Duhas being on JJJ, Australia's big radio station, and the presenter saying that won't get a lot of airtime, and everyone being like, nah, sorry, mate, we're going to request the shit out of that song. <laughs> <laughs> Which I thought was awesome. Yeah, take it as a challenge. <laughs> yeah, famous last words, right? Yeah, I don't see this one coming up too often. Uh, Peter said, this episode was great and made me take a fresh look at a record I have owned for over 20 years. I'd never even taken the time to contemplate looking at lyrical translations. Completely changes the album for me in a good way. Thanks, lads. Oh, wow. Um, That's awesome. And I'm going to digress for a second just off of Peter's uh, comment there, because and, and this does tie into the the Faith and More album that we're going to talk about today. But I, in my day job, because I work in sort of the education field and just with everything that's kind of going on, like I've been having this feeling lately of like, 
there's so much information overload that's happening 24-7, and we're just bombarded with so much different things that it's actually uh, us having this show. I know it, it is very important to me to be able to spend time with you and just kind of focus on one thing and really dive deep into one thing. And it, it has like this sort of deceleration effect of like, let's just take a moment, like stop and smell the roses and, and appreciate mm. this thing, both historically for like the preservation of these these bands and this music and these albums that had such an effect on generations of people and stuff like that. I think it's it's kind of important to have those discussions. But yeah, this this Faith No More album got me thinking a lot about that just because my lack of experience with this band and like the ability because of uh, Jonathan nominating this, you know, album to be able to go back and really experience something in a way that I hadn't before. And so I think that's really cool. And I think it's cool that people who listen to this show find that with certain albums that we talk about, even if they've had them forever or or never listened to them at all, and can kind of go back and experience these things and spend time with it. Um, because I just feel like today, like we don't spend time with things. We move from one thing yeah. to the other so quickly. And spending time with things, um, especially creative things like like these, like this music and these albums, is really um, good for the soul. I think so. Uh, now, so that's uh, my existential, uh, <laughs> you know, a hundred percent. I mean, and again, we'll talk about this more when we talk about the album specifically. But yeah, I, I similar sort of thing with this particular album you know, with Angel Dust. Uh, yeah, my relationship to it has changed in the past couple of months uh, compared to when I first heard it, yeah, back in 92 or something, um, be- for a number of reasons that we'll get into. But yeah, absolutely forcing us, if you like, to um, pay more attention to it because of the show has absolutely, yeah, changed my relationship to it completely. Yeah. And and that's I'm super excited to talk about this this album. Uh, Phil jumped in on the Ramstein uh, discussion and said, "Speaking of fanatical fans of bands, hi, Queensrÿche fan here." Uh, he said, "We Queensrÿche fans were always trying to interpret every album as a full concept album, linking each song to the other. <laughs> and to be fair, Queensrÿche wrote common themes in their songs on their first two albums. But when Mind Crime came out, there were many that attempted to retcon and connect every song from the Warning to Mind Crime as a single concept story. That was because I was kind of sharing that." Uh, in that particular episode, but also a theme that I think really ties into the Faith No More discussion of like experience, experiencing something uh, as opposed to like deciphering something. Right, right. Uh, and I think that that'll be a fun thing to kind of talk about today. Uh, Dave said, I only knew Ramstein from The Lost Highway in the Vin Diesel action film Triple X. <laughs> uh, he said, I don't know. Uh, he, I liked what I heard, though. So finally, homework I was unfamiliar with and excited to dive into. It did not disappoint either. Ultimately, to me, Ramstein sounded like a combination of typo, negative, and ministry with the uh, over-the-top Germanicness of Werner Herzog. Uh, that's a fun and pretty satisfying combination. And he shared the opening scene from Triple X, if anyone wants to see that. It's uh, on his comment on the Ramstein thing. Uh, I don't know that I've ever seen more than the trailer for Vin Diesel's Triple X. But... I, I did watch it at the time, uh, but I haven't watched it since, I must admit. And I'd actually completely forgotten that there was a Ramstein song in it. But, I mean, one of the good things about Ramstein is that 
certainly on a surface level, if you hear one song and you go, oh, I quite like that, chances are you're going to like Rammstein yeah, in, gen- yes. in general. You know, they don't deviate all that much from their formula. Uh, and, you know, sometimes that's not a great thing, but some bands are built like that. Motorhead, we talked about you know, all the time. Right, ACDC. You hear one song and you go, oh, that's pretty good. Then you, you know, you may as well go out and buy a few albums because you're going to like the rest as well. <laughs> well, and I mean, a whole other discussion we could have someday about like variations on a theme, right? Of like really being so good at doing the thing that you do that you're able to just nuance. Right. You just know, keep that, doing it with minor it, variations totally, and, yes. and that's good enough. Yeah, and, yeah. and the fact that we can only name uh, probably on one hand bands that have successfully done that for an entire career, right? And, um, and, and are considered, uh, you know, in that higher echelon of bands, yeah. right? Uh, let's see. Stuart said, I found this episode enjoyable, as always, but also quite self-enlightening. The thing that struck a chord with me when Brian described how he listened to the album first, ignoring the lyrics, effectively hearing the vocals as another instrument, I realized that's how I listen to pretty much all vocals, whether in English, German, French, or in the case of uh, Heilung, one among several uh, Scandi languages, just another instrument. There are exceptions, of course, but a lot of my listening is done while working, and the ability to disengage with the conscious transfer of information implied in language helps in that scenario. I think that's a super... uh, I find that super interesting because, again, relating especially to the Faith No More uh, thing, like, listening to uh, albums... And I listen to albums in foreign languages that I don't understand, like, you know, albums in Russian and stuff that I have no hope of understanding whatsoever, and I've never looked at translations, and I do enjoy them. But I have noticed over the years that I do tend to enjoy albums more if I know what somebody's singing. Not necessarily what they're singing about, like, not necessarily getting the meaning. That's not so important to me, but literally just knowing what they are singing, uh, yeah, generally helps me appreciate and enjoy an album more Heilung, by the way are yeah a um uh sort of scandinavian they're from all over the place they're members scandinavian kind of uh folk art ritual band uh but with like you know they use modern synthesizers and stuff as well as you know 50 piece tribal drum sets and gongs and shit um i i have posted links to their stuff on the thrashed out facebook group before i love them Highlongar, they're, they're very much a band that needs to be experienced live um and one of their concerts i can't remember what it's called now for the life of me um is literally just the whole concert is on youtube you know officially it's on their channel uh from a few years ago and that is absolutely worth watching they're not necessarily metal but if you like some of the stranger <laughs> aspects of metal that we talk about and occasionally dive into you will probably like Highlunk, and especially if you're a dirty old hippie like me you know then you'll very much like them because that's <laughs> basically what they are uh let's see kenneth said uh ramstein are an odd band for me i really like their music but never was a big enough fan to see them live or in most cases listen to one of their albums the whole way through i guess it was the lost highway soundtrack and i um it's interesting how many times lost highway comes, up, comes up in this up, discussion yeah, right yeah. Uh, that I became aware of them, uh, but Sensuk was my first album by them. It's good, but as Anthony says, it's not as good as Mutter. Uh, he yeah. says, uh, Mutter is just a face-stopping, heavy album that also has hooks for days. Till's voice is just incredible, and as you both say, he can paint a picture even if you can't understand what he's saying. Which is what we were just saying earlier, yeah, yeah. exactly. 
Uh, Kenton said, great episode, fellas. One of my favorite bands, and I'm glad you got to them. Mutter is an album that never really grabbed me for some reason. I like a few songs, but I usually throw on any of their first five albums. Yes, even Rosenrock. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Andrew said, I've never really clicked with Ramstein, and this album didn't really convince me otherwise. There are elements of what they do that I like, Till's vocals, the theatricality. But to me, Ramstein songs sound like someone you meet at a party who starts talking about collecting breakfast cereal boxes, which is interesting at first. But after a while, you start to think, God, are they still talking about cereal boxes? <laughs> which I guess is my general attitude to most industrial stuff. So totally not surprising. Good music videos, though. In other news, I'm very happy about the listener poll choice. That is a fantastic analogy. I love that. <laughs> it, it is really good. Uh, all right. Well, yeah, uh, we're so glad that everybody enjoyed that episode. You know, it was a fun one for us to do, uh, especially, I mean, sometimes the the albums where you on first listen you go oh this is all kind of sounds the same there's not much to talk about here actually wind up being the more in-depth discussion the acdc album yep. is kind of like that i uh, i thought that was fascinating um if you want to join in the conversation uh talk about this episode or go and just you know post links to new metal that you come across and stuff like that or find links to new metal from other people posting it you can go to the facebook group and join in at uh, facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. It's one of those Facebook's attitudes towards groups changes by the day. But at the moment, it's one of those things where I don't think you need to officially join the group. But if you want to comment or post, we have to approve it. Your your first post or something. Just come along and join in. You know, pretty yep. much anything, as long as it's not spam or dickheadery gets approved. Don't worry about that. Yep, no spam or dickheadery. That's pretty much. Uh, that's pretty <laughs> much it. Rule number one: it don't be a dick. Yeah, basically. Um, right. So I want to, especially as we are doing this, you know, releasing this basically just in time for the holidays. I thought this would be a really good. This is something that I thought about a while ago, but I thought it would be a really good thing to for us to discuss and to suggest that listeners maybe might want to, you know, if they're feeling a bit bored on Christmas Day bring up with uh, relatives, because I think it's quite an interesting, oh, I don't know, maybe I'm deluded, but I think it's an interesting <laughs> topic of conversation, which is, what is the difference between heavy rock and hard rock? Because What I are you think, doing? What are you... <laughs> right. When, I, when, when you say heavy rock, uh-huh. I think of kind of a lot of 70s proto-metal. Deep okay. Purple, Bachman Turner Overdrive. Uh, you know, some aspects of Steppenwolf. That sort of thing. But when you say hard rock, I think of Guns N' Roses and ACDC and stuff like that. So... Where's the dividing line? Oh, dude. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, this, I guess, if you're going to bring up, there's so many like landmines of discussions that you don't want to bring up during the holidays. I think this is a pretty safe one to bring up uh, right, during yeah, the holidays, yeah, right? What's the difference anything, between yeah. heavy and hard rock? Um, <laughs> but, but I mean, this is one of those questions, as we've talked about many times on the show, that you're going to get a million different answers to that. Um, I don't, I mean, I guess my off the, top of my head answer is like, I don't know. Because what I even define as heavy, and we'll talk about this in this uh, album discussion that we're about to do, is constantly changing. Like, and to be honest, like heavy rock isn't even a, a label 
that I hard that I really even ever think about. Like to me, the, the like, and I've well, I've talked about before. Like the whole genre thing is is kind of um, I'm not good with the the labels of all of that kind of stuff. But to me, like there's hard rock and there's heavy metal. Like those are the two. If I'm if right. I'm thinking of labels, it's really those two. And maybe a third one would be like thrash metal. But even then, like. Yeah, I mean, there's. The, well, so where would you put a band like Deep Purple then? I think Which, I would just call them rock. Oh, okay, okay. Because then there's a the whole thing about like arena rock. But I mean, and Bruce Springsteen like, is also rock, and you know that's very different to something like Deep Purple. Right? Maybe hard rock then. You know, like I think there, to me, there's more. There's the the line that you're talking about exists between where my brain would put something in the rock category versus the metal category. So hard rock is basically everything that I would listen to that would fall in the rock category. And then if it's heavy enough to my brain, then it trickles over into the heavy metal category, right? Right. Um, Because so much of like, I mean, just think about the fact that many of the bands that we grew up listening to that were unequivocally metal and the heaviest of metal would now fall in the category of hard rock. Well, I mean, Guns N' Roses is a great example. Guns N' Roses were absolutely labelled as a heavy metal band, you know, when they were in their pomp. Yep. Um, uh, but, I mean, but so were Bon Jovi. <laughs> and very, very few people would call Bon Jovi a heavy metal band now, but they might call them a hard rock band. True. You know? Yes, I agree with you. I don't think, I, I think if, if the metal term was ascribed to them at all, it would be under the hair metal, um, you know, thing based oh, on a couple true, of their albums, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? But yeah, absolutely. I don't think anybody would call them heavy metal. And I think at the time when Guns N' Roses came on the scene, what they were doing was definitely heavier and more aggressive than the rock peers or, or the sure. hair metal peers that they even had at that time right like they were in both their image and in their music just uh doing something very different i think than um well than but that's why a, that's why i wonder if maybe it's to do just with time and generations because as you say heavy rock isn't a term that you hear much anymore but it used to be quite common um, and like I say, when I think of heavy rock, uh, most of the bands that I associate with it are kind of 1970s or early 80s bands. And then hard rock, I tend to think of mid to late 80s bands, even though a lot of those bands, as you say, would have been called heavy metal at the time, like GNR. Um, but I mean, ACDC have been going since the 70s. Right. And I don't know if they ever were termed heavy, you know, they've never fitted in the same camp as, again, somebody like Deep Purple. Um, yeah. and none of them fit in the camp of, I don't know, you know, emperor <laughs> or yeah. something from the nineties. So yeah, I, I mean, I don't have an answer for this. I just think it's a really interesting thing to think about. Is it just something that's evolved over time? What we consider metal versus rock has changed, you know, I as, think so. as metal itself has developed because metal is, we've talked about this before. Metal is apart from the only newer broad musical genres than metal are hip-hop and, um, uh, you know, it's like techno, dance stuff. Um, Metal is a very young musical genre, so, or relatively. So it has grown and evolved and matured over the years. And as it's matured, have we kind of left 
some of those labels behind? What would you call somebody who sounded like Deep Purple now if they came out? You know, I mean, they'd be called retro and throwback, but where would you put them in the metal subgenre? I mean, I, I yeah, for me, they would. Fall, I, I would just categorize them as rock. You know, like traditional r- rock or something. Yeah. Or yeah, to me, like I guess, I guess the older that I get, and like, although I shouldn't say that because I do think about different genres of metal and stuff like that. But I, uh, I think it goes back to what we talked about, and maybe this was last episode about like labels are only good until they get in the way, right? And yeah, and true. and that's where you get to the point of like, what do I want to? Why am I using that label? So am I using that label because I want someone to listen to Deep Purple? And so how am I conveying that to them in a way that hopefully will um, give them a frame of reference to, like, how am I positioning it? You know, like, it, it, it it's almost like you're a marketer, right? And you're trying to position right, this right. band in a, in a context that this person who may not be familiar with them can understand it and how it compares to other things that they're familiar with. And so in that way, I think it is helpful but it also requires the context of like what are what is the musical like schema or understanding of the person that you're talking to right because i know like if i'm having a conversation with my buddy who is like my hair metal buddy we grew up you know listening to hair metal and everything is around that plus like the big four that's the frame of reference that so i know when i reach out to him and i text him about something I know exactly how I'm going to describe this band that I want him to listen to based on what I know of his musical tastes. I'm like, it's a little bit of this and it's a lot of this and you're going to love it um, sort of thing. And that would be totally different than I would describe that band to someone else who I was trying to get them to listen to. Right. Right. And yeah, so, that makes sense. Which which does kind of suggest, I mean, not just context, but does kind of suggest generational stuff and time as well, doesn't it? Well, um, yeah, and just like the evolution of those bands to begin, like, man, ACDC and and Motorhead, right? Of the the sort of um, refusal, not that they didn't evolve at all, right? But the 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 true like understanding of of who they are and what they're going to do. When you look at all of these other bands, like you could look at a lot of what the big four, well, maybe not Slayer, but definitely some of what Anthrax has done and most certainly Megadeth and Metallica, you could categorize a lot of what they've put out in the last 15 years as rock, not not that's, even heavy metal. That's true. That's true. Uh, that's just true. rock. Um, and so, but then also you're talking about the founding fathers of thrash at the same time you know what i mean and so like for us who are uh, the age that we're at right now it's like how do i even categorize some of this stuff because you know it's it's just wild to me like listening to the evolution of these bands that were clearly one thing at a point in time and and still possess many elements of that thing but are also something else and um and I, I guess think, like Slayer of the Big Four is the only one that you can't really say that of. Like I they guess, they have been yeah. the most Motorhead and ACDC of the Big Four, right? Yeah, they had one or two albums. Three. One right. or two albums where they experimented, but you know, mostly yeah, just stuck to the formula, and that's you know, not a bad thing. But I'm thinking 
I don't know whether there's maybe an attitude to it as well, because thinking about those early thrash bands, remember a lot of them cited bands like Motorhead or even stuff like Quiet Riot and Thin Lizzy as influences. Thin Lizzy and Rainbow are other good examples of that sort of 70s era, the Deep Purple era, you know, like early Sabbath and what have you. I mean, Sabbath, everybody calls them heavy metal. They don't sound that different to those bands, but, what, but they sound different enough. And I wonder if there is, maybe it's something in the attitude as well. Because again, yeah, nobody would call Motorhead heavy rock, but you might call them hard rock. And Thin Lizzy, on the other hand, or Rainbow actually will be a better example. Nobody was going to call Rainbow hard rock, but you might call them, they are quite heavy. And obviously they're nowhere near as hard as then Dio's solo stuff afterwards. Um, And I wonder if some of that is a certain amount of aggression or edge or attitude, maybe. I think so. Those earlier bands like Deep Purple and Rainbow didn't really have, that wasn't what they were about. But Black Sabbath, it was absolutely what they were about. Like their entire thing was attitude and aggression. That was kind of the point. I just think it's less easy as time goes on to, to put some of these bands like in one particular category. Right. And I think, so I, the way I do listen to music now is, is from, uh, and, and maybe in some ways always have, even though my, my tastes are more varied now is like, what do I need from this music today? So do I need, um, do I need speed and technicality? Do I need a, uh, just an incredible vocal performance, maybe an aggressive vocal performance, maybe a maybe a soaring vocal performance. Like, what am I needing from this? And those are almost the labels. So it's almost like attributes that I that I'm thinking of now when I think of like, what is the album that I'm going to put on right now? Instead of being like, I need to listen to thrash metal. I'm like, all right, I want to listen to something that just punches me in the stomach that has growly vocals or maybe has clean vocals you know that that i know there's going to be some shredding solos in or i don't care about that because i want something that that feels more uh raw um sort of thing and like i still get to those labels eventually like of what i'm going to be listening to but i think nowadays it's more of like what is the impact on me that this music is having and what am i seeking out of it in terms of those um, sort of traits. And for a lot of those things that used to be considered metal, um, in some ways, when I listen to them now, they just don't have the punch to me to go back to your aggression right. statement, right? They don't have the punch of that I need. It's uh, one of my like symphonic metal is where I struggle with a lot of that stuff is and a lot of it to me has to do with just the production of it where it doesn't have the punch to me mm-hmm. that I need from like a like a harder like from the guitars being pushed more up in the mix or something, you know what I mean? And so it really is for me about like, what is, what is the impact on me when I listen to it, as opposed to what is the genre that this falls into? I guess. Yeah. And I I mean, I guess I'm kind of the same. I just, you know, I I find this sort of thought experiment interesting. Um, And I don't have an answer. I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) that's the other thing. I don't have an answer to give here. Like I say, I just thought it was an intro. It was a question that I can't remember why. I might have been listening to like a Thin Lizzy, uh, you know, their Live and Dangerous album or something, which I occasionally put on um, and thinking like, where would I put this? Is this heavy rock? Is this hard rock? 
I, I can't remember why the question came to mind, but I just thought, oh, I'm going to remember that for the show. <laughs> well, Ian, I, I just, just to kind of put a bow on that whole discussion, like if you are listening to this podcast right now and this past four to five minutes has made you angry, then you're thinking too much about labels. If it has made <laughs> yes. you reflective, then awesome. You know, go back and, and think more about that. But if you were screaming into your, you know, <laughs> into your phone or whatever, of like, no, they're clearly this, then you're thinking too much about labels. But, um, but and also, so, you are our kind of person. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. I mean, this is, yeah, just, uh, yeah, just remove the anger from it and then uh, it becomes a reflection. And that's great. Uh, uh, all right. All right. Let's talk faith no more. Okay, one thing I want to mention before oh, we go. get into it, because I think it's very tied into all of this. Angelo Badalamenti. Oh, yes. Who passed away. V- obviously famous for his collaborations with uh, Dave Lynch. And definitely, I believe firmly, an influence on Faith No More. Um, for a couple of reasons that I'll talk about sort of when we get into it. But his... Uh, his passing obviously made me think of, you know, Lynch and the collaborations that they had, but also like the approach that Lynch takes to his work in general. And it is, it, it's just one of those things, like everything happens for a reason. Like the fact that mm. we are recording now, as opposed to a week and a half ago. And to me, like the connections to Battlementi and Lynch that I feel when I listen to this album, like it's just wild to me that we're recording this now. Like, and that that was something that brought into the experience of like really diving deep and spending time with this album and the, and just thinking about the impact that the album had on me and also just where I'm at in my life and all of that kind of stuff. Like it really, to me, all seems very connected. That's fascinating because I, uh, if he was an influence on Faith No More, I wasn't aware of it. So I'd be interested to hear you talk about that when we get to it. Um, but talking about Lynch as a filmmaker and Badalamenti as a musician, one of the things that I like about them, and I, I, I came to realize a while ago, I, there's a lot of my favorite filmmakers and musicians are like this. They have a very instinctive attitude to, the, to their creation. Uh, where they will do something not because it's necessarily correct, but because it feels right. Uh, Vangelis was famously very good at, you know, exactly the same sort of thing. And he was, I wrote about him when he passed in my newsletter uh, because I love so much of Vangelis's work, massive influence on my own music uh, and my own sort of creative methods throughout my life. You know, he famously never used click tracks never used sort of like timings or anything like that. He would just play instinctively and compose instinctively while he was watching scenes from a movie that he was scoring. Bad Lamenti did much the same thing uh, quite often. And in collaborating with Lynch and Bad Lamenti, there's one particular story where I can't remember exactly which piece of music it, it is or like where it's from in Twin Peaks, but one of the sort of very sad piano pieces uh, that Bad Lamenti did for Twin Peaks, there's a very famous story or, you know, or sort of repeatedly told, I should say, story of Lynch really just kind of directing him by emotion and yes. saying like, oh, I, think I want this theme. and I want it to feel like this and now this and now this yep. and Bad Lament is just kind of doing it and improvising it 
And what comes out of it is this beautiful piece of music. And there's no, it's not timed. It's not, they're right. not talking in notes and scales or anything like that. It's all about the emotion of the music. And what you get out of it is something that is, as I think anybody would agree, about Lynch's work and Badalamenti's work, and especially when they combine something that is completely almost impossible to describe. You can't analyze it, it's almost ineffable. And yet, the impact is very real and enormous, you know, the emotional impact that it has on you, even though you can't actually explain why. And I love it. But, dude, the, what you're describing is exactly what I think about the mindset of the band and this album. And so, but so let's, and we can okay, unpack yeah. that no, as we fair. sort of yeah, go cool. along. But the, but to go back to the Battle Menti thing, I believe uh, it, it, there's been a video circulating around of the writing of the Twin Peaks theme and Battle Menti's recant, recounting that story in a video where he's playing the theme and he's saying that, yeah. And so he was telling me like right here, it needs to climb and it needs to be here. And and he was writing the Twin Peaks theme. And then, like, at the end of him doing that, Lynch said, that that is Twin Peaks. Oh, maybe that's and it. And Battle maybe was like, theme. okay, well, I'll yeah. go home and I'll workshop it. And he said, no, you do not change a single note. Like, that is... <laughs> yeah, that's it. That is it. <laughs> and it is, like, chill-inducing when you hear that story, right? And just that, that level of collaboration... Um, I think we all strive for that, right? In any, like, if you're a writer or if, or if you are an artist or what, like, when you collaborate with someone else and you can get to that point, which is so rare, where you can have that uh, that type of collaboration, it, it is truly uh, amazing and and profound. But another like parallel, I think, to like where these guys were at with this album and not just Mike Patton, but the whole band, but definitely Mike Patton because he often is the one that gets interviewed around stuff. I think is uh, in interview after interview after interview, he has a very Lynchian way about him. Um, there's so many videos of David Lynch and there's one, uh, I think he was talking about a racer head where he's like a racer head is my most spiritual oh. movie. And the, the guy yeah. interviewing him says, well, can you elaborate on that? No. Yeah. Well, he doesn't nope. even say, can you? The interviewer literally he says, says elaborate, elaborate on, on that. And he says, and no. Lynch just goes, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Refusal. But like, I and, and uh, if you've never read or listened to his book, Catching the Big Fish, I highly, highly recommend it. Uh, in the audio book, David Lynch actually um, narrates himself. And it's a lot of it feels like not stream of consciousness, but it's it's not it's not um, overly concerned with adhering to uh, like a traditional structure, which is yeah. obviously exactly what you would expect <laughs> from him in that sort of situation. But the thing that that struck me when I um, first read that book, and now I've listened to the audio version like several times, is just the the thing about him being a painter. Like David Lynch is a painter. Oh yeah, and, a good and one. when and when you think about his movies or his television series or whatever, all being paintings, to me, it unlocked a way of enjoying his work that has is just how I view everything that he does now. It is a painting in, in the sense that, like, it is not meant to be understood um, 
in a level where there is a right answer or a wrong answer. Right, on a, it on is a, meant, on a literal level. Correct. Yeah. It is meant to be experienced. It is not meant to fill in every detail. It is meant for you to fill in details of your own as you sort of go through it. It is, And so, like, to me, now I look at all of his work as a painting, where it's like, there are going to be gaps, there are going to be, um, there are things that I'm going to bring to that, that he, because he's never going to tell me the answer. And that's just not how he operates. And, um, and when you look at, when you look at the discourse of like, what, what some people wanted Twin Peaks The Return to be, when it came out a few years ago, versus what it is, um, to me, that's a direct parallel to this album that we're talking about today. Yeah. No, I, I was just going to say, I, I can see the parallels with this album for sure. And when you look yeah. at, <laughs> like, from the record company to the fan base to what music was at the time to everything else, like, I, I don't know. I mean, for me, like, this album is a masterpiece. And I'm so grateful that and this goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that this was the album that came up in that choice, because I can't believe that I've never spent time with this album the way that I did for this. Like, it, it fundamentally changed who I understand Faith No More to be, um, and I have, like, I'm obsessed with this band now, <laughs> and just their, <laughs> just like their whole, because the other thing that struck me about Mike Patton and looking back at so many different interviews, but also other members of the band too, is the uh, complete intolerance for shitty interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, and, he's, yeah. <laughs> but that gets attributed to him, like, being a dick, and I don't think that that's the case at all. And actually, it, this is a compliment, reminded me of you. In the sense that when, like, just knowing you, right? And, the, and for those that don't know, uh, our relationship began with interviews. Right, right. Like when you were right, when you when were, you were working on Wasteland, and, when yeah, I was doing yeah. a comics podcast, um, and ironically, there's a CD that came out with a deluxe version of this album, where it is the band answering questions that have been asked to them. But the question is in the liner notes, basically. So you're never hearing the interview. And here's a fun fact for you. In the very, very early days of my old comics podcast, Secret Identity, the, Anthony was the first person who ever reached out to us about doing an interview. And I could go on for days about how you were really tied into the grassroots podcast movement at that point and, and leveraged it extremely well in terms of um, comics. But like, we didn't know what we were doing so much at that point. We were so young in our podcast infancy. This was probably like 2008. Um, that I sent you a list of questions. You emailed and you, me the questions. And you yeah. recorded <laughs> the answers to them. Yeah. And in the podcast episode, I would say, and this is the question that we asked Anthony next, and then I would play the response. And so in listening to the on YouTube, you could find the CD of, of uh, interviews that Faith No More did for this album. That was the first thing that struck me. I was like, oh, they did the Secret Identity uh, version <laughs> of this interview where you just hear the band answering the questions. I thought that was so funny. But... Of all the, and you and I have talked about this before, like of all the interviews that you've done and, and, and things like that, like you start to notice patterns in the way that people interview people. Yeah. And there is a very bland, vanilla, um, lazy, I think, way of doing an interview that puts all of the heavy lifting on the interviewee and also 
there's like rudimentary work that should have been done before that interview started. Like it's the asking of the same questions every time. It's the, you know, tell us all about your, you know, how you got to this point. Um, tell us about yourself sort of thing. It's like that thing that is like, I think a waste of time in many right, cases. Like, for... Assume everybody watching this has no idea who you are, which, you know, <laughs> at, at a certain point, okay, fair enough. But I agree, like on something like this, for a band like this, after they'd had the phenomenal success they'd had with the real thing, why, why would you ask those questions? Well, and if you look at the sandwich interview, as it's known, the one where MTV sent people uh, yeah. to go into the studio and interview <laughs> these guys when they were making this album, there's some great nuggets that come out of that. But there's a lot of like Mike Patton being completely bored with the bullshit questions that he's getting asked. Yeah. Like, what do you think's going on in music today? And what albums are you looking forward to this year? And like, and uh, the first question he gets asked is like, who do you think are the bands that are influencing people today? And he would like, or, or who are the biggest influencers in music today? And he's like, influencing who? Yeah. Like, what are you like, uh, and she says, just people in general. And I think he, <laughs> his answers are ELO, the Carpenters, and I can't remember who the was. <laughs> just like loads of bands from the 70s. It's like, hang on, he's clearly taking the piss. I think I, I actually pulled out a comment from under, I think it might have been that very video, uh, where somebody says, and I think this is really insightful. This guy says, uh, talking about Mike Patton, the guy has serious Andy Kaufman quality about him. A hundred percent. It's hard to tell what's sarcasm, what he's making up on the spot, and what's sincere. He comes off as a guy who could be sincere for an entire conversation, but managed to convince you otherwise. He's one of the few artists I could honestly call enigmatic, because he's so meticulous, and yet presents himself as almost shallow that you can't tell if he's orchestrating the whole thing or not. He could be a fucking sociopath, for all I know. A hundred percent. And that is so and, insightful about Patton. That is exactly how he comes across, yeah. But also, like, to me, that fundamentally ties into themes that run through this entire album and yeah, where the exactly. band was at yeah. at the time, which is like, and let's just stick to the interview thing, right? If I'm going to get the same questions in every interview, or I'm going to get the same level of questions in every interview that I'm doing. And I have to do these interviews. It reminds me of the press junkets for movies, right? Where yeah, I was they, just, just like, that every, yeah. one comes in after another and asks them the same damn question. It's like, I'm going to start to invent my own reality in these interviews. Yep. I'm going to make my own fun in these interviews. And to take a step back and talk about musically, I feel like they're at a point where it's like, okay, if everyone is going to put us in the box of these expectations about what we're supposed to do next. And they're the same expectations that every other freaking band has when they have the level of success that we've had, or they had a hit album, or they had something like that from the record company, from all the producers, from all this crap. We're going to, we are going to go hard in a different direction. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to subvert every bit of that. Yeah. Um, well, I saw a, a, a retrospective uh, thing about this album with a few of the band members and Roddy Bottom at one point actually says that be yeah exactly that that they had so much success from the real thing and and as a result everybody expected them to do things a certain way but they had always been him and Billy Gould especially had always been so contrary uh you know right from being young because they've been friends since they were in school I believe 
uh, that their attitude was just like, oh, yeah? Well, how do you like this, fuckers? Yep. I saw that same <laughs> interview. And, and again, I think that was very true. I also think, like, it gets to be where, like, the acclaim and the acceptance is now perceived as a bad thing. Where well, it's like, wait you... a second, if we're so palatable to everybody right now. Right. What are we doing wrong? We, hang exactly, on a, hang because a, it's hang like... A minute. How can a band like us be so successful and popular? Totally. Have we sold out or what? You know, and I can totally understand how that comes about. The press junkets thing, by the way, I just want to say, if ever you've watched one of those, like, especially the ones that get pulled out and stuck on YouTube, interviews with a movie star where they say crazy, outrageous things, or they're clearly just sort of bored during the interview, that's why. Like, you have... you. Honestly, believe me, having seen this from the other side, you have no idea how long these people are made to spend just sitting in a room and an endless procession of interviewers comes in all day long for 10 minutes at a time asking the same questions over and over and over again. It's like a weird form of torture. I'm not at all surprised that they get bored and start to go a little crazy during those things. It is absolutely mind-numbing. Well, and two things on that. Number one, to go back to David Lynch, like imagine what Lynch's response would be to universal, um, you know, belovedness and critical acclaim of like, right. you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like, like if if the response to Twin Peaks was like everybody gets it, everybody understands everything that you're going for. This He'd is just completely weirder. Yeah, yeah, this is completely mainstream. You've made something that appeals to literally everyone. Uh, to me, I feel like that would be the greatest insult to to Lynch that you could possibly levy, right? Yeah. And so again, to me, that there there's definitely parallels there of this band being like, wait a second, are we even innovating at all? If if we're now the flavor of the month, like what? you know, what is even happening with that? Um, well, it's like, I, I often say, I, I say this about writing a lot, but it's true about creativity in general. And I'm not the only person to have said it by any means, but I, you know, it's a question that I get asked quite often uh, about sort of, yeah, you know, creativity, headspace and that sort of thing. And I often encourage young writers, especially that uh, if you're, if you're not a little afraid when you're working, then you're not really pushing yourself. And by afraid, what I mean is doing something where you think, I'm not sure if I can pull this off. Like, I'm trying to do something here that I've never actually quite done before, uh, in, you know, in whatever way that may be, and I'm not sure if I'm going to succeed. I think that's necessary. No matter what you're doing, if you are working creatively, you have to have a certain amount of that feeling. Not completely, you know, not throw yourself out to sea, but just have some aspect of uncertainty about whether or not you can actually do what you are trying to achieve creatively. And if you don't have that, then you stagnate. You know, that's when you just, you go, oh no, I know exactly what I'm doing. I know how to do this. No problem. I'll just do the same as I did before, and that's the, that's the kiss of death. Well, and that came up in multiple interviews with, um, you know, with people. Let's see. Uh, there was one. Which, uh, incidentally, while you're looking for that, I'm just going to mention, there's a lot of, there's over the years, Jim Martin, the guitarist of Faith and More, famously left the band after this album. Yes. 
And over the years, there have been lots of back and forth and conflicting accounts of why. And some people have said that it's because he didn't like this change in musical direction. But I've seen interviews, or sorry, I should say read transcripts of interviews, because he's actually quite reclusive now these days, Martin, where Martin himself has said, like, no, he was fine with the change in musical direction. What he didn't like about this album was all the big-budget corporate bullshit that came along with it because they'd been so successful on the previous album. You know, like being surrounded by journalists while he's trying to record his guitar parts and stuff like that. Now... That was that particular transcript was many years after the fact. So, you know, there's a kind of nobody really except Jim Martin himself will really know. But that does suggest anyway that, you know, if that's true, that, yeah, even he was okay with this change in direction that the band took and had that same attitude of like, no, 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 let's do something different. Let's continue innovating, as you said. Uh, And that it wasn't that it wasn't the music that drove him away but the other stuff around the band yeah and both could be true right because it also it's a matter of degrees where like is everybody in the band on the same wavelength as far as how much we're going to deviate from the thing that made us you know got us uh to this point before but yeah i mean there are stories about the tour with guns and roses and the you know just the fact that they were often kind of as soon as things got comfortable, like blowing it up, right? right like right. the the, the conversation with Axel Rose and stuff was basically like, yeah, we're just a bunch of shit stirrers. That's why yeah. we're talking shit about you guys and stuff yeah. like that. It's just kind of <laughs> like, you know, their feud with the Red Hot Chili Peppers at one point in time, which although from what I've read was kind of started by... Um, by the Chili Peppers. By the Chili Peppers yeah. in saying yeah. that, you know, that uh, they were kind of copying them or, or something like that. But like, I do feel like as soon as things started to get comfortable... Uh, you know, at least multiple members of the band had a very visceral reaction to that of right, like, of going well, like, I yeah. guess we got to blow it up now because like this, this is getting a little bit too, um, too comfortable. But even in those, um, th- so the sandwich interview was when MTV went into the sessions, like uh, other members of the band were also interviewed too. Uh, and Mike Borden was saying during those same series of interviews, which I believe are from 1992, um, he was saying, when you start grabbing on and saying, this thing was great, I got to do this again, that's when things get a bit weird. So he was also talking yeah. about like, yeah, we've had some success, um, but at the same time, like if if our goal is to just hold on to that, like that's a, that's a bad thing. He also, during that interview, talked about Jim's um, maybe not disgruntledness with where things were at at the point, but he they were talking about the making of the record, and he was even saying at the time that he hadn't heard Jim's um, guitar stuff yet, and and he was saying like Jim's a pretty secretive guy. Like I'm sure when we hear it, it'll be great and stuff like that. But there was some, you could tell that there was tensions, like even yeah. from the other band members as they were kind of talking at that point in time. There was something that came up with with Patton's uh, interview as well that just kind of certainly implied that like they're not all on the same page at that particular point in time but yeah the thing that i took from so many of the interviews was like especially with mike Patton, like you see his eyes light up when he either gets a question that he hasn't been asked before or the interviewer surprises him with you know knowing a band or a reference or something like that that he that he didn't expect them to know or something like like you can just see like when he's when there's a challenge he's he uh, opens up more and he's more authentic and stuff like that. And a lot of the other times he's giving answers that are just absolute 
you know, just bullshit. nonsense. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just but, like, like I say, something that someone's going to print. Like, in, uh, and the thing is, like, this is 1992. Imagine in today's world of like Twitter sound bites and stuff like that, and also of like people taking everything at completely face value. Oh god, yeah. Like the level of responses that he's giving in some of these interviews would be headline news for so many different <laughs> music sites nowadays. Of like, <laughs> you know, he said this song's about Madonna. I forget what song he was talking about with uh, with that one, but it was. Uh, it was but midlife like, crisis. Yeah, maybe it was midlife crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, and the thing is, when and it you, would blow up into a big Twitter feud or something. It yeah, would blow yeah. up into a big Twitter feud, like <laughs> because like the nonsense answers that he would give in those things would just be you know taken for truth and and just absolutely run with. But yeah, I'll tell you, man, I had a blast going back and listening to and watching some of these old interviews. Um, as someone who has interviewed a lot of people as well, like it just was. Right. Um, well, uh, and like I said, having been on the other side as someone who gets interviewed a fair amount, yeah, I totally sympathize with you do light up when you get a question that you haven't been asked before or one that forces you to actually think yeah. about something that you haven't contemplated before because they're so rare. They're so rare, those questions. And so when they happen, if, if you are a, a creative person, a creative worker who takes, not takes yourself seriously, but takes the work seriously, takes the creation seriously, then you do think about these things. And yeah, so when you get a question that makes you think about that process or about your own creativity or whatever in a way you haven't considered it before, it is just kind of like, oh, brilliant. Something, you know, something yeah. new well, to think and- about and you know, a new angle to approach this from. I just want to also shout out, like, I'm not shooting on interviewers. Like, if you go back and look at my early interviews, they're exactly the same as all of these things that I'm talking about right now. Because when you when you just start interviewing people, you're often so starstruck by the fact that you're getting to interview this person that made this thing that you really appreciate that you tend to ask questions that are very vanilla. And it's only through experience that you start to vary your style sure. and build your approach and stuff like that. But it, but it is, but that's also um, it is tough the... on the creative when, to your point, they're getting interviewed constantly, especially in the cycle of we have a new album coming out. So I'm going to do 50 interviews, yep. you know, for this new album or this but, new movie or this new thing. And 49 of them are going to ask me the same exact questions that I've been asked every time. But also, if you're in a position where the media is sending interviewers to talk to you about your new album, it's kind of on them not to send you a rookie. Yeah. You know, I think that's the thing. I think everybody has sympathy, yeah, for the ones who are obvious rookies because we're all starting out here. Nobody knows who we are, so they just send a rookie reporter to interview us or whatever. Fine, okay, you know, we're all we're all learning. But when you reach the level of success and awareness that Faith No More had by the time they were recording Angel Dust, you don't send a rookie interviewer. Now, maybe that interviewer wasn't a rookie, I don't know. Or, like, um, sending the person who covers the League of Legends beat to interview you about Resident Evil Village. Right. You know? Yeah, exactly. You send <laughs> somebody like, who's knowledgeable so, and knows yeah. what they're talking about. Yeah, exactly. So what makes the horror genre so interesting, Anthony? <laughs> yeah. <What's>, uh, <laughs> why horror games? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Why cozy uh, mysteries? So um, what's we've we've talked a lot about sort of and it's all relevant talking about the sort of band as a creative force. But I'm interested to know when did you first hear them? When how did you sort of? Because well, you it, kind of described it. In it's the fair beginning. to say that neither of us were huge or are huge Faith No More fans. You know, we're not lifelong fans, but we clearly had both heard them in the nineties. 
Yes, and I would I, I would add to that statement until this episode, um, <laughs> <Fair enough>. because <laughs> this uh, I am one hundred percent all in on Faith No More now, um, and and just diving deep, which is so exciting for me to be able to dive deep into um, just the history of the band and stuff like that. And so, um, but it was the video for Epic that was on MTV. Yeah, at the time, which was like ninety ninety one, I think ninety. Which which is the one that sounds a bit Chili Peppers ish, isn't it? It is, and and keep in mind, at the time, I'm I, I'm deep into hair metal and thrash metal. Though so that's my two, you know, it's the Big Four, and it's Motley Crue, and it's you know, uh, state of the art speed metal. Yep. It's the world state of the art speed metal band in Megadeth, Anthony, as you know well from that particular time. So Faith No More doesn't fit into either of those categories. That song didn't fit into either of those categories. There was something about it that I found very compelling. Um, and I don't know if I owned the real thing or if I just had friends that owned it. But I, I ended up you know, listening casually to probably that full album. It might even have been when I went to, to college in 92 that people I was rooming with had a copy of the real thing and stuff like that. And so, but didn't see them live at the time, wasn't following them at the time, um, wasn't, just wasn't plugged into anything that they were doing, but liked that song. But that was my experience with them, was that song. And then the only song I remember from this album is Midlife Crisis. And so that was my, my experience back in the day with Faith No More was largely two songs. Wow. Um, didn't, I might've bought the real thing at some point. Definitely never owned this album. Um, I can't think of, I don't think I've ever seen them live. And I feel like looking at some of their live performances, I would know if I saw, like, I wouldn't have forgotten if I, you know, if I saw them live, but unless they were on like an Ozfest or something, um, you know, back in the day that I would have seen them. And so largely off my radar, um, have you ever listened to uh, Mr. Bungle? Yes, but only because of the most recent release, then went back and listened to um Oh, so stuff. not at the time. Right. Oh, interesting. No, wasn't listening to Mr. Bungle at the time. Maybe heard them again hanging out with friends or something like that, but wasn't wasn't part of my um collection and my you know, my sort of uh portfolio of bands that I listened to at that particular time. So yeah, went into this obviously knowing who faith no more was and and knowing you know having experienced them back in the day and stuff like that but really not knowing much about like i've learned more about mike patton in the past couple of years just because of mr bungle and um interviews that have been done with him more recently and stuff like that than i ever knew um back then and so i could you could say i went into this one fairly cold like lukewarm at best of my knowledge of the band and 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 like a a wide sample of their music um and was completely blown away (laughs) like completely blown away by this album Uh, this album is a painting this album is a david lynch film this like well, there are certainly what, aspects of it, yeah, yeah. Well, to, like as a whole, to me, like, and it profoundly affected me because of how brave 
I feel like this album is like I'm the thing that I just like can't get over is that they made this album as a follow up to the real thing. Yeah. Like, and not in a shitty to have your Megadeth reference, like Super Collider way, where <laughs> that shitty album was, uh, you know, that to was an attempt degree, to cash in. That was an attempt to be more commercial. It was an attempt yeah. to become, uh, to, to have more mainstream attention, right? As opposed to, this is the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> this is like, this we've is had a all direct that <laughs> reaction to success and then the expectations that come with that success. And they were like, fuck that this is fascinating because i really because they were so popular in the 90s and because they had such huge success in the states i really expected you to know more about the band or to have more experience with the band than me but it sounds like that's not the case which is no not at all i find fascinating so i i mean the real thing i never owned the real thing either but the real thing it's kind of like you know, Black Album or Brothers in Arms or something, you don't need to own it to have heard the entire album several, you know, multiple times. totally. Because everybody else owned it. It was so popular. Um, So, like everybody else, I first heard them when that blew up. I heard, I'm pretty sure we either first heard we care a lot after the real thing came out because that kind of retrospectively became known, you know, amongst people going like, oh, hey, did you know they... You know, this isn't their first album. They had these others and there's this single, blah, blah, blah. I feel like We Care A Lot got like more play on MTV and the like after The Real Thing, uh, you know, as a sort of retrospective track. Um, but, and, and I liked some tracks on it, like Epic and um, From Out of Nowhere, I think is probably my favourite track off that album. Um, not that I know the album all that well, because they were never really my band. Like the alt metal thing was was kind of take it or leave it for me um you know by that in the early 90s especially i was very much full-on sabbath motorhead sisters of mercy you know like black clad (laughs) um you know hard-edged stuff that was really my kind of thing at that time um i do remember that faith no more were really popular with the indie kids in our sixth form i remember being in the sixth form common room and the the group of trend sort of half trendy half indie kids had a certain had a particular area of the room where they always sat and they had a stereo you know a, um cassette player and i remember them playing uh the real thing like over and over and over again it was a really popular album with that lot that's partly where i heard it so many times um especially girls which is a funny thing i don't know if that's partly because uh, Mike Patton is, you know, quite a good-looking guy. Um, or if it's because they weren't full-on metal, if they had, because they had that sort of ironic, playful attitude, even on the real thing, or maybe some combination of those things. But I remember that they, out of all of the kind of non-hair rock bands, they were the one that was most popular with girls, or especially girls who were in the indie scene at that time. Um, uh, yeah, these days it seems like that's not really such a factor in things. But back then, you know, we're talking like late eighties, early nineties. It was much more of a, it was much more of a division about you know this is boys' music, this is girls' music. Um, so point being, I was aware of them, but I wasn't into them, and I definitely heard some of their stuff. Uh, but like I say, wasn't into them. And then this album came out. Now by that time, I was out of school, but I was in art college. 
And you can imagine that this is an album that lots of people in art college, <laughs> you know, very much got into. So again, I heard this album, but I never bought it. I never got into it. And honestly, it didn't stick with me. Um, and I think that's partly because it was such a departure, again, such a sort of weird album to follow up from the real thing that it didn't get played as much. It wasn't as popular. You didn't hear people playing it on their stereos in common rooms and stuff as much as you did with the real thing. And so I couldn't honestly say, I couldn't remember now how many times I actually heard this album, whether it was in the background or whatever, uh, or even whether it would have been all the way through, but it certainly didn't stick none of the tracks apart from Midlife Crisis, which was a huge single hit. None of the tracks on this album stuck with me in the way that some of the tracks from the real thing did. But that's what I meant earlier about this album's been a real journey for me in terms of listening, because I had that kind of, like you, I just sort of, they faded away and I stopped thinking about Faith No More for years and years and years. There was the Mr. Bungle aspect, and I had some friends, again, mostly from art college, who were really into Mr. Bungle. Like, unhealthily into Mr. Bungle. Uh, I think as a kind of anti-commercial reaction, which is kind of what Mr. Bungle itself is as a project, um, I never got into that side of things. It was just too, not even too weird, but too kind of almost deliberately anti-commercial and self-indulgent. Um, at least the parts of it that I heard, there was nothing in Mr. Mongol that made me go, oh yeah, I'll go out and buy this album. Absolutely, there never has been, I'm afraid. Um, so there was that aspect of it. But again, that only lasted for a short period of time in my sphere of awareness anyway. And then, yeah, again, as you say, just kind of Faith No More faded from my mind and I never really thought about it. I was amazed to realise that they were even still producing records, apparently. Um, that's kind of... That's amazing to me that they're still going because you just don't hear about them anymore at all. But this album, like I say, I'd kind of pretty much forgotten about, and then we had to do it for this episode. So from I went from indifference to on my first listen going like, I'm really not sure about this. And then after a few more listens, I was like, oh no, actually, I'm kind of getting into this. Yeah, no, okay, I can I can see you know the value of this now. To then after even more listens going. But there are some aspects of it that actually I'm not that keen on. So, so it's been a real roller coaster. <laughs> For me, I feel like it's only been a deeper appreciation with every listen. And it it took me a couple listens to sort of warm up to, to the album overall. Um, but with each subsequent listen, like I'm obsessed with this album. Now. I'm listening to it constantly. Um, and I love how it all fits together. And the the version that we're doing is the one with the cover uh on the end of it, which we'll talk about um well, when we two get covers. To. Two covers. Well, on correct. The end. But the first cover was included in the original pressing of the album and the second one I think was the reissue a year later or something like that. If I'm not mis- I could be wrong in, about that. The, the, in the US that's correct. So okay, the first yeah. the first release of this album in the US had 13 tracks and ended with the theme from Midnight Cowboy. Overseas, it always had the cover of Easy by the Commodores as the final track after Midnight Cowboy. And then a year later, yes, when they reissued it in the US, they also put oh, that okay. on the US versions because 
again, I'm not sure about in the US, but internationally, that cover of Easy huge was massive. Is actually yeah. probably the thing most people know them for outside of rock circles. To be honest with you, yeah. And I, and the the amazing thing is, both of those are amazing closing tracks for an album, <laughs> like <laughs> for this album in particular, which is wild to me that like either one of those is like the perfect um sort of closing i was looking for for so just like we don't have to keep going down the interview hole but there's some some great sites out there most faith no more fans are probably familiar with them already so i apologize that i've been digging through them and um but there's a site called fnmfollowers.com that has some great um archival stuff including like a making of thing where they're quoting interviews from all over the place which is really good um and then i think it was just this year that a youtube channel called the pit did an interview with um a few of the members of the band just thinking back to because it's the 30th anniversary year of the album just kind of thinking back to it and stuff like that and one of the things that uh billy gold was saying was that they ended up touring brazil for an entire month back in 91 (laughs) and essentially like that was a crazy adventure but they kind of it but it, it like contributed to the spirit of what they were starting to put together and what they were writing for um angel dust and which I thought was was uh, really interesting. And then, of course, the title, they talk in multiple places about it, you know, being just the fact that Angel Dust is like this beautiful name for a really horrible thing. And that dichotomy is something that really inspired a lot of what they were doing on this album, which, again, to me, is super Lynchian, right? Of yeah. So much of what he does, it, to go back to like his painting sort of in his visual nature and stuff of like um, that sort of thing in the way that he takes something that most people know or most people think is beautiful and shows you the other side of it and all of that stuff is just like it just kept you know weaving itself together for me um you know uh which was wild but yeah there's so many good interviews out there of um but i think we've hit on the high notes of like they clearly wanted to do something different they didn't want to be put in a box um this was a reaction to what was going on at the time they also, it seems, were pretty disappointed with what was happening in music in general at the time and wanted to keep, you know, as they saw it, sort of pushing the envelope and, and doing something different. And so all of that stuff just kind of came up over and over again in these things. Um, yeah, well, so, and, yeah. The, and that they have no regrets. That's the other thing is that <laughs> totally. it's, it, it's quite interesting to see them talk, you know, now over the last 10 years, whatever, when they get asked about this album, like, Every single member of the band is like, yep, no, we did what we wanted to do. Like, we have no regrets. It's exactly the album that we wanted to make at that time. It was very deliberate. There was nothing accidental about it. And we still love it. And it's like, oh, okay, wow. You know, <laughs> you could, they would be forgiven. I think most people would quite understand or forgive them if they said, yeah, you know, maybe we should have made something a bit more radio friendly so that we could have had a bit more success. But no, they're absolutely defiant to the end. Well, and I think that speaks so highly of the place that they started from, right? Which is that we're going to do something deliberately different. Yeah. And as a reaction to that, and not a cash-in, you know, to the point where the record company was freaking out because that what they were hearing from them for this new album was, like, not what they wanted to hear or expected to hear. Um, right, sort of imagine thing. As opposed to those cash-in albums, right, where people are adapting to the... Imagine if the stu- if the you know rep from the studio goes down and the first tracks that they're working on are things like uh you know smaller and smaller 
or malpractice or or something there was a quote from one of the interviews where one of the studio people was like i hope nobody bought a house or, or something uh, yes, like that yes uh, yeah like just like <laughs> and and there's another quote from another interview where mike Patton was saying like how awesome is that when you can make like the studio squirm um around that so they clearly <laughs> got a rise out of the fact that like they were Th- to me, Defying like that was like their North Star, right? Of like, oh, okay, well, we're on the right track then if we are really freaking people out about this. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. All right, well, let's, let's talk about the album itself then. Uh, so it's from, yeah, as we've said, 1992, 14 songs on this particular edition. It's 62 minutes long, which I think is actually a fault of the album. If I have one overriding issue with it, it's that it is, it is too long. Uh, and there are, because there are too many. There are too many mid-tempo tracks, I think, on this album that make it feel longer even than it is. And not that they're bad tracks in isolation. It's a bit like Soundgarden's Super Unknown, actually. I have the same problem with that. Like, every track individually is great, but there are just too many of them. Um, you know, that's what B-sides are for, guys. Or, or, or well, I suppose it used to be. <laughs> used to be. <laughs> no such thing as B-sides anymore, is there? <laughs> I hear that. Um, I don't. I feel like it's a. You disagree, I feel like it's yeah. a tight sixty-two uh, for me. Like I, I very much enjoy this whole experience. Um, but I can thing, totally see that. The other thing I'll say in general is that this album has a reputation because of Jim Martin leaving afterwards and the change in direction and all that sort of thing. It has a reputation for like not being as heavy or as guitar-y as the real thing, but that's absolutely just not true. Like you, as I was listening to it, I was like, Jim Martin is all over this album. He's on every track. He's playing quite heavily on a lot of the tracks. It's just that he's not forward in the mix to the extent that he was on the real thing. Or also that the songs, many of the songs are not what I would say riff driven. Right. They're not built around the guitar. To me, they're built around some killer bass lines in a lot of them. And and obviously the keyboards um, that what's interesting though about the sound, because I agree with you, like just going back and listening to the real thing and like listening to this one, the, the whole sound of this album feels much heavier to me overall and fuller. And um, Matt Wallace was saying about, this production on this album he said from my perspective as co-producer engineer and mixer i was in my own way really distancing myself from the sonics of the real thing as i felt it was thin overly compressed and had too much high end um he said Al- although this all worked in our favor on radio and mtv so i endeavored to try and create a much fuller more natural sounding record when he was talking about this one yeah. here yeah which um, I, I think is probably accurate yeah yeah all right so let's get into the album uh tracks the individual tracks then and we'll start of course with the album opener track one land of sunshine Yeah. 
my f- literal first thought when I heard this song was I would be shocked if this if this band and this album in particular were not a huge inspiration for Ghost. Really? Just, I mean, there's a couple songs in this album where I feel like, holy crap, like this is a Ghost song. Um, or this is a this is exactly what Ghost does in this particular song and stuff like that. And so huh. I just like it would, immediately made me think of them. Would Ghost like early have... Ghost, like before uh, the rats stuff? <laughs> yeah, okay. I was going to say, would Ghost have the weird rhythm of this though? Because it's almost like a triplet rhythm. This track, isn't it? Um, yeah, but maybe to me, it's more of like would've... the keyboards and the bass leading the way. And then the guitar is kind of following it. Like, there's just some some particular phrases that I think um, on this song, and there's one other that I noted, like, th- this feels very ghost to me, which tells me that maybe this was influential for them. So the the keyboards, especially this sort of, which are a bit sort of carnival, uh, yeah. you know, sort of circus-like, that, which actually reminds me of Mr. Bungle, also <laughs> made me think, I wonder if this was an influence on Insane Clown Posse. Oh, because they're, that's they're, an interesting one. It was around 92, 93 that Insane Clown Posse went full on like horror circus. Yeah. Uh, freak show kind of stuff. And I'm like, hmm, not an influence that you'd expect. But I if I mean, I don't know if that's the case, but it wouldn't surprise me. I could certainly uh, see it. But yeah, it's I mean, right off the bat here, it is clear that they're not doing the real thing part two. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. You know, that's the main thing I think that you get from this track is it's a real statement of like, yeah, no, we're well, not going to get the same album that we did before. Uh, you know, it's a really intense rhythm. Uh, Borden isn't using any kind of hi-hats or anything during the verse. It's all just like toms and the snare. Um, and the keyboards, yeah, are really kind of atonal and, and weird. Apparently the lyrics in this, uh, at least he claims, were taken from um, fortune cookies and Scientology aptitude tests, which, oh. yeah, I mean, sounds on Interesting. Brand. <laughs> the fortune cookie thing, now that you say it makes immediate sense to me, um, I mean, just the, the vocal performance on this song and just the the sort of mocking nature of it i think is really interesting too like yeah you know fortune is smiling upon you and then the laughter you hear is a very much mocking laughter yeah. you know um does life seem worthwhile to you like just uh even though there is a song called midlife crisis here and probably because i'm in a midlife crisis being the age that i'm in <laughs> um lots of uh, that stuff resonates with me here right of like but also i think tying into the larger theme of the album of just um expectations that people have for you or expectations that you're provided of what life is supposed to be like yeah and absolutely. what you can expect from it um and you know the whole like do you know, do these things and you'll be successful sort of thing. Um, and then sort of looking back at these things that you've done, did you get the result that you were told you were going to get? Or did you like all of that stuff, I think kind of, uh, plays into it. And just the, the idea of like a lot of that is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, I just want to, cause we're going to be mentioning him a lot. I think to work this on Billy Gould is really working it on this track. Holy like, moly. On most of the album, like you, you're absolutely right. 
saying that, yeah, the real thing kind of feels like it's a guitar-driven album. This album feels like it's kind of drums and bass-led. Oh, dude, as much as so anything. drums and bass. And yeah. just, like, really... I mean, some songs where it's deliberately simple bass lines, but so many songs where it's just the funk and the, just the way he's playing the bass is just, like, it's popping in it. Yeah. Well, like, and he's really, just really all good. over the goddamn fretboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just, like... um very sort of and the way that the bass and drums work together just really good uh has a has a raw feel to it has a big feel to it um the, the album's a showcase man, for boarding as well for sure it, like, it, again uh, more so to- than the real thing he really shines on this album i think but just like all of it right just like the vocal range the different styles of delivery the the different bass lines the drums the keyboards which are just like just so much stuff that I feel like is operating at a high level together. Um, yeah, everybody's present. I think is the is the point. Yeah, isn't it? you you couldn't take. There are five people in this band, and you couldn't take any one of them away without but completely like, changing what this album would sound like. Like so, like this high level of musicianship and this high level of uh, everything clicking together. None of it in service of your expectations, yeah. Which is like wild, right? <laughs> like just that it's all, it's all clicking, and these guys are firing on all cylinders, and none of it is designed to meet your expectations right. of what no, you think is going to happen next. None of it is in order to get played on the radio. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's just like, it's just uh, empowering. You know what I mean? Just to just that that's what they did here. All right, well, let's move on to track two, Caffeine. Talk about a slapping bass, man. Yes. Just like... Odd time signature as well. Another very intense rhythm, yeah. And just like Patton's vocal delivery here where it's uh, goblin-esque in some yeah. ways, but then like those <laughs> the angry growls and stuff like that. Like it's when you go to... When you think about the melodic approach in song one to like what you're getting here, just like... It's really good. Oh, and it's another track again. I mentioned it uh, earlier. Jim Martin is all over these first two tracks, even though they're not guitar-led. Yes. You know, there is plenty of guitar in them. Honestly, though, this for me, this is a track that I would cut. Like, Really? Ag- yeah, again, it's not bad in isolation. And I know they play this live apparently quite a lot. It's quite a popular live track, and I, I guess I can see that. But I don't think that this kind of strengthens the album in a way that you would miss it 
if 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 it was never there in the first place, do you know what I mean? You wouldn't think that the album was lacking anything. And I think that's the problem, as I say, with the track with the album being so long. There are a few tracks where if they just weren't if you remove them now, sure, obviously you'd miss them because you're used to it. But if they were never there in the first place, you wouldn't feel oh, this album's missing something. It needs something more. I think there's too many tracks here that kind of do the same thing, um, you know, as other tracks do. And I think that's the case here. Again, it's not a bad track in isolation. I enjoy listening to it, but I don't think it does anything that other tracks on the album don't already do. I disagree. (laughs) I think, uh, I feel like this is the... This is such a one-two punch of songs, especially thinking about like what comes after this, right? From a from a flow standpoint, I I think it serves a great purpose here, and I, I think that especially the way that this song ends, like I love at like two minutes and thirty seconds where the bass really and when he says, "Do you have something to tell me?" Yeah, and then the screaming, and then it gets very sort of punky, thrashy, hardcore. Just like the, to me, this song is very much like the emotions. Like it's it's that emotional push pull of like the quiet moments, and then just the absolute rage uh, blast. You know, towards the end of the song, like I, I just really like that kind of back and forth of it, and I feel like it's such a strong follow up to the first song. And so we've kind of covered in the first. I almost look at the first two songs as a, as a package deal in the sense of like what have we accomplished in these first two songs? And I think what we've accomplished is giving you a very clear expectation of like what you, of what not to expect, but also kind of like forming some kind of guardrails around where we're going for the rest of this album. Mm, I mean, that, that's, that's true, but I don't know whether you needed two tracks to do it. That's kind of what I mean about, yeah, you know, the first track already did that really. Um, I don't know that the first track gave us the, the unbridled rage that you get in this. And maybe to your point, maybe we didn't need a a whole song to get there, right. Of four and a half minutes um, to, to sort of do that. But I do, I don't know that we got that in the first song and we definitely get it in this one. Mm, Okay. Fair. All right. Well, but you're right. What comes after of course is the big single, the track that apart from the easy cover, uh, the track that, almost everyone knows this band for and knows from this album to the point where I know there are people who think this track is on the real thing. They don't realize that it's on this album okay? because it's built because that's the album. It feels like their second single of what you know of faith no more, which is kind of what I went back to say at the beginning of this episode. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And that is of course, track three midlife crisis.
Yeah. Um, I, I mean, bef- prior to diving in, I would say it's the one song I remember off this album. Yeah. It's the song that everybody remembers off this album. Again, apart from the, the Commodores cover, um, it was such a huge hit. I think it might have been the first single as well, which maybe contributes. I think it was. To, uh, which, again, this is back in the days when you would release singles before the album. And I'm pretty sure this one was released before the album was released, which may contribute towards people mistakenly thinking that it's off the real thing, along with just the fact that it is, it sounds probably more like, it does. of all the tracks on this album, this is the Agreed. one that you could put on the real thing and it wouldn't feel out of place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's the most quote-unquote normal It's song. the most radio-friendly of the songs on this album, right? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, for um, sure. But it is also a great song. Yeah, Excellent. I mean, you know, Borden's uh, opening beat is a real sort of head bopper. It does make you. I remember dancing to this, you know, alternative nights and and stuff back in the nineties because it is a, a genuine radio friendly, dance floor friendly track. But it is also pretty heavy. Um, you know, it gets really it definitely gets heavy. Yeah. Yep. And uh, the baseline is freaking super catchy and has a great sort of bop to it you know it's it is uh but you're absolutely right i mean it feels like it could be on the real thing yeah yeah and that's not like you said it's not a bad thing no no not at all not at all the halftime bridge in this as well i think does a really good job of it feels kind of epic to coin you know pun not intended um there it shows that how good they are at doing the sort of breakdown and then build back up thing which they do a lot that's actually you know kind of a not a shtick necessarily, but it is just something that they do a fair amount, and they're really, really good at it. And of course, here they hit it with the the final when everything drops out, and then he starts with "You're perfect, yes, it's true" for the last time, or the last sequence of those, I should say. Um, that is such a big drop, and that alone feels. And I don't know. I, I I haven't looked at sort of the timeline of this, but it feels like that alone may have been an influence on quite a few <laughs> metal yeah. tracks and rock tracks that came afterwards. Because it's you know a relatively uh, not everybody does it, and they do it really really well. Um, and certainly, I can't recall. I don't think there's anything like that on the Black Album, which is obviously the other hugely influential album of around this period. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a really good track, really well constructed. It is radio friendly, but it is also still weird and a bit dark for them. You know, lines like, my head is like lettuce, go on, dig your thumbs in. I mean, that's not, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's not yeah. Ariana Grande, you know? <laughs> no, and, and again, like for Mike Patton's, like his range and delivery, I think it, this is another showcase for that, right? Of yes. like just his, he's he's got so many little things that he does over the course of a song whether it's kind of almost almost like a spoken word delivery or just like how he drops down or how you know or when he adds a little bit of grit but doesn't go full on you know like just there's all these little i don't know and again i could be totally wrong because obviously i wasn't that well versed in faith no more like back in the day but i don't know that he gets the credit he deserves as a singer no, I think he doesn't. Well, just I, overall yeah. in the conversation. I, I think it's one of those things where people who know, like people again in rock circles, yes, know that he how incredibly talented and versatile he is. But outside of that, yeah, he's just kind of flies under the radar. Um, and 
And yet he is enormously talented and enormously versatile. Just uh, as you say, there is, I don't think there are any songs on this album where he just does one type of delivery all the way through. Yep. Um, Versatility, I think you hit on it, is, is really what it is. And like, to go back to like the the sort of gut instinct piece that you talked about earlier, right? Of just like giving it what it needs, yeah. Like well, just and, giving it what whatever whatever the song kind of needs, and again, what what their song needs, not what you need, right? The, you know, in that situation, but what well, they what well, they need. Although he did have more of a hand in writing the songs this time around than he had on the real thing. Um, right, there was like a month on the that he had thing. to like turn everything around, yeah. By all accounts on the real thing, the music was basically already written, and so he was just writing lyrics and vocal melodies, whereas on this one he was actually involved in, you know, the music jamming stuff as well. Uh, and he has a few musical writing credits, I think, on the album. But this is, I mean, th- <laughs> this track is about as far away from Mr. Bungle as you can get. <laughs> right. But, so it's yeah. funny that I'm going to mention it here, but... The, talking about the vocal versatility, that's the sort of thing that he displays, really displays on Mr. Bungle. Um, again, that's not really my thing, but if you want to hear Mike Patton do like 40 different kinds of vocals in the space of five minutes, then Mr. Bungle is your thing, because that's what he does throughout <laughs> the, uh, the you entire... You will find it there. Yeah. <laughs> every album, every song, that's what he does. Oh. Uh. But yeah, you know, huge hit, deservedly. It's a great track. But ironically, probably, imagine how many people heard Midlife Crisis, thought, yes, I'm going to go and buy that, bought this album, and then went, what the fuck? Yep, not like, one of these things is not like the other. Uh, uh, whereas, track four is probably is more uh, representative of the rest of the album, and that is RV. Like deceptively simple, right? But not. Yeah. Yeah. I I um I mean you could totally dissect the lyrics to this, but from and that's what I kinda like about this, to go back to just that idea of like it's a painting and you just experience it and you don't have to analyze, you know, deeper. Like on its surface, it could literally just be a guy in an R V having a conversation with himself, right? Um, but also there's a there's some of the lyrics on this song that are like pretty powerful um you know especially the way the way that it ends as well but yeah like just almost like you know crooning in this song you know what i mean like just again with with mike Patton's delivery and and uh um 
the sort of theme of angel dust, like beautiful and terrible, right? Like the, the beautiful and the ugly, um, both sides of the coin sort of thing. I think all of that is captured really well here. I think it also, it really gives us a breather. Uh, like, I mean, again, midlife crisis isn't as intense as the first two tracks, but it's still, you know, it's a loud rock track. And so having this come after that is a real, uh, especially given how weird musically it is, uh, it is a real breather. Um, and a real sort of chance to to catch one's breath, but also a reminder that, yeah, this is a weird album. This is not the album that you might have been expecting. Um, I, I, I do kind of like it. It's another one that I might, you know, if I was f- forced to sort of choose a few tracks, I might drop it just because it is so out of character. <laughs> um, but it is a good track in isolation. As you say, the lyrics certainly are very powerful. It's very brave. You mentioned bravery earlier. It's very brave to put a track like this on track four of an album. Yeah. Like so, so high like, up the track list. And I, to go back to what you were saying, like, I guess if you had to make a cut on this album, you could make the case that this, the simplicity of this song maybe doesn't hold up against what some of these other songs are doing. You know, whether they're super heavy or not super heavy, just like melodically and, and all of that stuff, you could maybe make the case that it doesn't. But again, like where it sits on the album, what it represents in the flow, some of the things that it's hitting on in its lyrics, like I feel like it justifies its place on the album for sure. Also, was this a trend? Like th- this track always puts me in mind of um, Good Friends and a Bottle of Pills from Far Beyond Driven, you know, the Pantera mm. track, and some of Jim Thurwell's Fetus stuff as well. Like, was this a trend in the early 90s to do these kind of almost loungy, drawl vocal tracks in an otherwise loud, raucous rock album? I don't know. Maybe a mini trend. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe something to dive deeper into. It's one that I'd be interested to hear from listeners. Actually, if you can think of other examples from around this time of, yeah, otherwise loud, raucous bands suddenly doing uh, really, like, laid-back, drawly vocal tracks in the middle of their albums, I would love to hear about them. Um, let's move on to track five, Smaller and Smaller. favorite song on the album really wow wow i mean i feel like the riff is a crusher 
Um, and I feel like the, the, you know, keyboard slash piano line actually makes it heavier. Um, like the singular notes to me make it even heavier. And then some of the stuff that it's getting at lyrically, I also feel is really super interesting. Um, lyrically, I agree. It's really interesting. Musically, it's okay. Jim Martin's performance on this actually is great. Uh, he, I think he, this is one of the tracks where he shines. Um, but it feels, it's very low energy. It feels like it belongs on the, you know, in, in the dip at the back half of the album rather than at track five, you know? I think, I don't want to, I don't want to make this as an excuse (laughs) to that, to that criticism of it. When I look at the lyrics, I think that's part of, I think the almost like wearing you down element of it. Right, is right. part of the intent. Of, it is quite monotonous. That's true, and that's probably intentional. Yeah, and like I've seen interpretations of this that that have to do with sort of um, the taking of Native American land. Mm-hmm. I've seen interpretations of this that are about capitalism and just like continuing to to uh, grind the worker into dust, um, which I think uh, resonates. I'm both of those I think thematically resonate with what's happening here but like um you know what and also the larger theme that they are trying to get at with this album right like what happens when we exist only to work to meet someone else's expectations yeah. expectations and how much and this idea of smaller, so maybe the, thematically the song just really resonates with me because I've had this conversation a lot lately with um, people I used to work with and people I work with now, but just this idea of like, you get to a certain age and, and this probably resonates with you with you as well of like, you don't want to make yourself smaller anymore. Like you get to a point in your life where you're done and you tire of you get tired of like making yourself showing less of yourself in whatever it is that you're doing to please other people. And you just get to that point in your life where like, you're kind of done with that. And I I think that's part of the idea of a midlife crisis, right? Where you're examining, you know, what are the compromises I've made of, of who I am to get to where I am today? And am I willing to continue to do that? And, and how rare it is to not have to make those compromises of yourself to um, sort of do that, but also like the, just how the, the entire system is geared to make you do that. Um, and, And increasingly more so. And so, yeah. So I think just all of those ingredients mixed together made this song really resonate with me. No, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I agree that I think all the lyrics, as I say, are good. Uh, I, I, you know, I just I wish musically it was a bit more interesting. But like you say, maybe that's the intent. Maybe it's meant to be sort of, yeah, a little monotonous and a little sort of grinding deliberately to go alongside the lyrics. Yeah, it, like enduring it, right? And how it makes you feel. Bit of a dirge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you're right. Yeah. Still, all right. Let's move on to track six. Everything's ruined. Things were 
one of the singles, I believe. Another very interesting topic of uh, yeah. <laughs> thematically, right? Of yeah. like uh, living your whole life to meet expectations, only to find out that that's that you didn't get the result that you thought you, that you were going to get. So, um, yeah. yeah, another great baseline here. Yes. Um, I feel like this is a song where the guitar is just kind of providing a little bit of signposting, <laughs> like of of providing yeah. some sort of rails for what we're doing here. But the but it has like a dreamy quality to it. The the keyboard line to it is very sort of um almost like questioning sort of thing. Like there's an element of uncertainty to it, I feel like. Um and a bit of like awkwardness to it. Uh of of almost like you know how this is going to end it's not like all of these perfect things that you think that you're building towards like it's not actually perfect and you can almost hear that in the in the music uh and then sort of the fact that the you know when you look back on it at the end it's not what you thought it was sort of thing that's so that's fascinating uh way to think about it because ironically or perhaps not ironically, perhaps deliberately. One of the things I love about this track, actually, and it's not my favorite track in the album, but it, it's close to it. It's you know, it's a good good track. But one of the things I really like about it is how it ends, because it doesn't end the way you expect it to. Uh, yeah. the, the track does kind of develop maybe in ways that you expect, but the very end it ends with both the rhythm and the chord unresolved, um, which you know it just isn't again speaking sort of t- in a, in terms of being technically correct, musically correct. That's not how you're supposed to end tracks. Now, obviously, they're not the only people to have done this. I've done it myself. Even Aha have done it. There's one of my favorite tracks of theirs does exactly that and ends sort of halfway through a line on an unresolved chord because it's a really unusual and kind of attention-grabbing way to end a song. But in context of what you just said about how, you know, it is uh, um, about sort of going along with, expectations and then do you get the result you do that you expect at the end well no you don't <laughs> right not, not with this it's like the house track. and the white picket fence and the full-time job and the spending your whole life in one position and then and it all goes wrong the family it, it all goes wrong and, at the end yeah it, right totally um it's a great showcase yeah. for Patton's vocals as well this a hundred percent i think yeah. partly because he's again you know employing several different styles but the thing i want to point out here is how much of his vocal melody in this track is unusual, always changing, and almost completely unrelated to what's going on with the music. Uh-huh. Like, it follows the rhythm, and a lot of his vocals do that, you know, follow the rhythm more than the um, music. Um, but yeah, in terms of melody and uh, tune and what have you, it is almost completely unrelated to the music that is underneath. Um, and not again, not that he's necessarily the only vocalist who would do something like that, but he does it a lot. And this track's a really good example of how it works to bring this track up. Without that, this track is, again, it's good, but musically it is fairly simple. You know, it, it's not that, massively complex, but his, the complexity of his vocals over the top, I think, really brings the whole thing up. And, and, and like, but that goes back to what we were talking about earlier of like them, him and them in, in each of their roles in, in the band, like doing what the song needs or, or what's going to elevate the song or that particular, yeah. uh, particular piece, as opposed to like what you as the listener would expect right or what you as the listener might think in that situation and like it's so 
awesome that what they give you is not at all what you would think or expect or or prescribe right and so in that way i think it's really profound and just like this is one of the songs that makes me think like i'm actually glad that i didn't know this album so well in 1992 because in 1992 i was a senior in high school this album would not have the impact that it has on me today thematically lyrically musically that back in 1992 it just wouldn't and so in that way like this is the perfect time for me to discover like i mean case in point like I lost my father a couple years ago. He is a person who spent his entire life doing one job. He worked for the electric company mm. his entire career. Um, he he got uh, Alzheimer's and just like, and died, at, you know, in his mid-70s. And so it's like a song like that now, this song now, listening to it now, uh, and all of that stuff, like what a profoundly different impact than if I heard this in, 1992 what would these themes even resonate with me would i even register them you know back in 1992 and so like that's one of the joys to me of like discovering an album like this now is like it it's at a time in my life where i'm going to get so much more out of it than i got back then and 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 yes isn't it ironic that like all of the members of the band were in their 20s (laughs) <laughs> that was the other thing I was going to say is like late 20s. Yeah. Right? Well, early like 20s. Approaching... For, not even late for Patton because he was the youngest member of the band, remember? Yeah. So like, and there is an interview. I'm glad that you brought this up because there is an interview where, um, you know, he's talking about like imagining what a midlife crisis would look like, you know, and trying to empathize with what a midlife crisis might feel like. Um, but at the same time, like creatively, this band was in a midlife crisis, right? I that's mean, that's true, yeah. that's what this whole thing is all about. So, like, that's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like, can someone in their early to mid twenties have a midlife crisis? Well, clearly, yes, based on based on the fact that when you're in a music band, especially a successful one, you are fast forwarding your life experiences to in a way that people who have lived twice as long as you haven't lived as much as you to that point. Right. And so can you have a midlife crisis as a, as a member of a metal band in uh, your mid twenties? Yes, absolutely. In a way that most people can't have a midlife crisis in their mid twenties. And so like, yeah, it is, it is wild to think about, where they were in their lives at this point making this album but it's also like one of the things that i think makes it profoundly resonate with me is just that the listening to this album and getting into it now at this point in my life it's a completely different experience than and and i feel like a better one and one that i can appreciate more now um and i think so often we look at overlooked albums or albums that you missed or whatever as some sort of a failing right of like man how could you not have listened to this album at this time? Or how did you miss this amazing thing or something like that? And it's like, in some ways, because it wasn't the time for that to come along for you. And then now it, it, it's like people who maybe listened to this episode and are not that familiar with David Lynch or they saw one of his movies and it didn't make any sense to them. So they didn't give it, you know, uh, you know, they didn't give it the time of day and then they go find it or go find Battlementi's music or whatever now, and at this point in their lives, have a completely different appreciation for it. So, uh, like, I kind of love that. 
It, it's that's funny that you say that because I always joke that I got my midlife crisis over with when I was in my twenties. <laughs> I often, I often say that I had mine when I was twenty five and you know got over it uh, years ago. Um, so yeah, I mean, I you're absolutely right. The experiences that people, especially having this sort of success that they had off the back of the previous album in this band, were having at that time, absolutely accelerates their life experience and i think that's true for any band that has that i mean look at metallica you know they all had their midlife crises when they were maybe not in their 20s but definitely in their 30s you know they well and the the impact of losing cliff burton when they did the impact of uh, well does that but i I was thinking around the sort of load you know uh, oh for sure you know you can easily point to that as their midlife crisis and they were only in their 30s at that point (laughs) yep 100 percent. all right let's move on to track seven malpractice I mean, death metal, industrial, crushing riff. Um, I don't know whether I'd have called it death metal, but I will say that this is definitely the heaviest track on the album for me. Like a lot of people point to Jizzlobber as like, oh, that's the, the you know that's the heavy metal track on this album. This is much heavier than Jizzlobber for me. I think uh, I agree. It, it, yeah, it's more intense. Yep. It's off kilter. It's certainly angrier. Um, I mean, Christ, it's even got bells sound effects <laughs> at one point, you know? <laughs> There's a bit and of Lane it, it Staley also has vocals that, on this one as well, do you, don't you think? Uh, a bit of grunge influence. 100%. Absolutely, I felt that. And also there's that whole, like, uh, beautiful and horrible, uh, you know, dichotomy as well. Um, yeah. You know, the, there's the keyboard line and there's the, the more melodic aspects of the song. And then there is just, like... The intensity, I think, is the right word for it. Like you said, just like super intense. Uh, I've read one interpretation of this song as someone waking up during surgery. Um, oh. <laughs> because oh. they're literally talking about like operating on them and stuff like that. Um, oh, cover my mouth while I'm staring into bright lights as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, See, but uh, again, that's just one interpretation. I, I always took this to be a reflection on, uh, you know, uh, being a performer. Mm. Um, you know, of, of being the sort of like the, the strange relationship that between a performer and an audience, especially at this at that time during the nineties. Maybe it's probably different now in this era of social media and everybody knowing everything about all their favorite artists and stuff. But you know, certainly in the early nineties, we were still in an era where the only things you learned about an artist were the sort of sanctioned things. You know, interviews, as we said on. TV or in the music press and what have you, 
And a lot of people didn't seek those things out. So they knew nothing about an artist other than what was on the record. Um, and it did create a very different and at times strange relationship between the performer and the audience that as oh, I, say, absolutely. I think is very different now. And I, so I, again, maybe I'm wrong, but that's what I interpreted this track to be maybe no, prim- I love that. primarily about. I think this is definitely a band and Patton is definitely a lyricist where songs can be about more than one thing at a time. Um, but well, to go back to the Lynch yeah. thing, right? Of like, they're not going to, like, you, you take what you right, elaborate take on out that. Of that. No. Yeah, no. <laughs> and, and the fact that malpractice can be the expectations of the audience upon the performer and the expectations of the performer and how they treat the audience. Exactly. Right? And, yeah, and in yeah. many ways, the, how they treat their audience with this one is, is like, endure this. Yeah. You had this expectation for us. Now, like they said, what about this? Um, can you stick this out? Can you. Are you still going to be as big of a fan of ours after this album? You know, like, what does it mean to be a fan of ours? That sort of thing, right? Exactly, yeah. So, yeah, as I say, that's what I took this track to be. But you, you may be right as well. It's, I, as I say, I think it's one of those things where there's, there are multiple valid interpretations for many of the tracks because the lyrics are so, uh, you know, odd and vague in many places. And also partly because, and this goes back to what I said ages ago, uh, about being able to read lyrics and know what he's saying like even if i don't necessarily uh know what the track is about being able to tell what he's saying for me increases my enjoyment of the tracks because that is a thing with Patton as well is that he his pronunciation is weird his rhythmic delivery of words is odd and often very unusual and not what you expect and frankly without a lyric sheet I wouldn't be able to tell probably half of what he's saying on this album. Um, typo negative actually were a, Pete Steele did that quite a bit as well. Um, yeah. So having the lyrics and being able to at least tell the words, even if I can't always, in, you know, elide the meaning uh, from them. I think it, for me, as I say, just increases my enjoyment um, because he's, his delivery is so weird and unusual in places that it, it does kind of detract from the tracks and from the music for me a little bit, but thank goodness they do at least include lyric sheets. <laughs> for sure. I definitely was looking at the lyrics quite a bit as I was listening to this about like, what, what did he say there? Yeah. Especially the ones where he like runs everything together. Yeah. Like an RV. Yeah. Like yeah to the get end. through the last part of that song. It's just like, okay, I'm going to need, <laughs> need a little bit of assistance here. I'm going to need a minute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, All right, move on to track eight, Kindergarten.
I mean, uh, this is a great tune. Great baseline, great melody. Um, was this one a probably, single? I don't, I don't think so, but sh- I feel like it should have been. That's exactly what I was going to um, say. It should have been, yeah. It, this it's... is probably the second most radio-friendly musically piece, I think, on the album. I agree. Um, and I think maybe the best line in the entire album, return to my own vomit like a dog. <laughs> the very first line, yeah. <laughs> oh, my God. Like, it's so good. It's such a good line. Um, I, I wish Patton sang like this more often, is what I'll say about this track. I don't actually have a lot to say about this track, to be perfectly honest with you. It's a good song. I think it should have been a single. It's a good rock song, you know, mid-tempo rocker. Um, I enjoy it. The main thing is that, yeah, I wish Patton sang like this more often instead of doing the sort of nasal thing that he does. Because uh, I think his vocals on this are really, really good. And I, I could quite easily listen to an album where he sings like this more. And I think I might enjoy it more if he did, you know? Um, yeah. Because he has got a genuinely good voice, but he well, kind of hides it sometimes under all the weird stylings. Agreed. And you just said it. Like, his, he has such a great voice. You just want to hear more of it. Yeah. Like, you just, want, you just want more of that because he's super talented. and. Um, you know, lots of uh, theme here about like living in the past, returning to your past, not being able to grow past your past, like all of those things. And, and you know, as someone who spends a good deal of time um, with his head in the 1980s, you know, like <laughs> it hits, it hits, it definitely hits and and lives five minutes from the hometown that he grew up in. Like, I, I get it. Uh, it. It sticks with me. This is also surely their only song with a bass solo. Oh, I mean, such a good <laughs> bass line, too. It, it is, and again, like, Billy Gould is a great bassist, and he's great in this track, but when, when the bass solo breaks out, I'm like, wow, really? <laughs> yeah, bring it. Like, I mean, I, I feel like we have to get a little bit of everything into this album, and so why not this song? I guess, I guess. But yeah, as I say, there's not a lot to say about it, really. It's a great track. Uh, you know, yeah, good lyrics. You can sing along to it. What more do you want? Yep. Track nine, however, <laughs> which you can also sing along to. <laughs> you definitely sing along to it. Is be aggressive. super catchy <laughs> um i like the i like the guitar on this song i mean obviously the song's about oral sex so and not uh, just and, any, from, and not just any oral sex but man on man gay oral sex 
Right. And what I've read is that, um, and I'm sure you've read the same thing, is that Roddy, who, this is, he came out in 1992. I've also read that, like, public, it wasn't public until 1993. That's right. But in almost all of those um, recounts, it was like, he wrote the lyrics to this song knowing that Mike was going to have to perform them. Yeah. Right. And and to his credit, Mike Patton went, yep, okay, sure. Yep. <laughs> but I mean then, it's a super catchy I love the fact that the song is so catchy and yet it is so clear yeah. <laughs> like at the same oh, time. Yeah, there's no subtlety here whatsoever. Um yeah, and the juxtaposition of the cheerleaders chanting, you know, along alongside right. these lyrics. If you're gonna go yeah. for it, like really go for it. Yeah. I, I, um, I think I, I don't think you could look at Mike Patton for long without going, Yeah, he's the kind of guy who'd be absolutely fine singing these lyrics. Because yeah. he would find them both funny and heartfelt and interesting, and he'd just enjoy standing up there in front of the audience going like, yeah, and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> well, and I just like, I love the the theme of the song. It's like, if you're going to do this, be the best at it. Right, yeah. Be yeah. like the best. Be aggressive. Um, that church organ opening as well, is that's got to be deliberate, you know, to sort of like, bring to mind church and Catholicism and stuff like Catholic choir boys, things like that. That's can't be an accident. No, I I can't imagine that it's an accident. And, and with that, I also felt like this is another ghost like, um, you know, inspiration here that this, this to me would be a song that ghost could definitely, especially like looking at some of ghosts lyrics and some of the themes that they talk about, like could easily see this being, uh, being an influence for ghost for sure. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought about that, but actually you're right. Yeah. I I could say that too. Uh, Yeah. The, so Roddy Bottom came out a year after or in the year after this album was released. It may not have been exactly a year, but the album came out in 92. He came out in 93, pun not intended. Um, and I remember it was literally front page news uh, of the music press. Um, I think it was a cover headline of Kerrang! at the time. I say literally front page news. I think it was a cover page headline. It was certainly a major, major news story in Kerrang! I remember that. Um, and it was funny because <laughs> I remember at the time being both, oh, okay, fine, like, so what? You know, just kind of not really caring much, but also being a little bit baffled that it was such a huge thing, partly because, like, who cares? Shouldn't really matter. But also because I was like, he's only the keyboardist in Faith No More. Like, why are we getting so... (laughs) Why are we getting so head up about this guy? You know, it's not like he's the lead singer of a massive legendary heavy metal band, which, of course, happened the year after. Um, oh, I was just going to say, when when did uh, the Rob Halford news hit, it, and that was a year later? That was, uh, well, it may not, again, it may not have been exactly a year after, but it was definitely after this. Uh, it was, yeah, it was Roddy Bottom coming out, kind of, and again, you know, in retrospect, it's like, oh, it was a huge deal. It's just at the time, <laughs> I couldn't quite understand why it was such a huge deal. But what it did do, because Faith No More weren't instantly vilified, and Roddy Bottom wasn't you know, lynched or whatever at at their next gig. Uh, It seemed to open the door a little bit, you know, and it's a door that's still opening. It still ain't open all the way, but it certainly opened the door enough for people like Rob Halford, yeah, to then uh, a while later come out and say, actually, yeah, me too. Uh, And then obviously, you know, over the years, there have been more and more to the point where now it's almost 
not even noteworthy. I won't say completely because there are still some aspects of the metal audience, you know, that are uh, unfortunately uh, too regressive. But for the most part, it almost doesn't matter anymore. Thank goodness. And yeah, Roddy Bottom was the at the time biggest star huh. in. Yeah, I didn't realize music. this was before. Yeah. It's, uh, and again, you know, you'd think like, well, it really shouldn't have been a big deal. But um, in 1993, it was a huge deal. Hmm. So, yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Um, but yeah, good song, fun, funny. It, again, you can sing along to it, whether you want to or not, I don't know. Well, that isn't, and isn't that great, right? That on this album, it's like the, the, you, you are compelled to sing along with it, right? right? <laughs> uh, which is awesome. Uh, and then track 10 is A Small Victory. a small victory as he sees yes. it <laughs> i i think this song has one of the coolest parts of any song on this album and what's that you know where he's saying if i speak at one constant volume at one constant pitch oh, at one yeah. constant rhythm right into your ear you still won't hear it. like that i freaking love that and i love then when he you know when he gets angry and he yells uh, as well like so good i mean you know again to me, a song about living up to expectations, you know, of, of needing to win. Um, and what is all that matter? Yeah. Uh, you know, that, that in seeking approval and all of that kind of stuff and, um, and what matters to other people versus what matters to yourself. Uh, it shouldn't bother me, but it does. Right. You know, and so, uh, and again, dude, that is so much of that. I think, I think everyone can relate to that. Right. Yeah. Um, but definitely for me, absolutely relates. And so I just, you know, as out there, as much of this album is right. And as much as like collectively we think about what a, what a departure and how much like there's very consistent themes running through this entire album and almost every song on it. And so there, there is very clear intentional themes on a lot of this, which again, I feel like to go back to like the painting analogy, like presented in different ways, right? And in some ways kind of broad strokes, but at the same time, like there's, uh, and, and maybe not meant to be overly analyzed and deciphered to, you know, down to the formulaic level, but just like themes and emotions and feelings and stuff like that and i really like that um because it keeps you in this kind of certain headspace when you're listening to it um which for me was a very kind of reflective one mm. 
Yeah, I like this track. It's, uh, I mean, this was another single, uh, and you can see why. You know, it's another one that makes you tap your toes, as it were. Yeah, um, I mean. Really great rhythm, very lively rhythm. Although I, I think one of the reasons that this track works is that you've got the juxtaposition of this really, really lively, head-bopping, foot-tapping rhythm with Patton doing really long vocal phrases, like he really draws out a lot of the words and lyrics on this. And I, I think the juxtaposition of those two is a really good formula um, for sort of making something manageable. Because when he gets on the, I suppose you could call it a chorus, you know, the it shouldn't bother me, but it does section, he gets all rhythmic, again, to the point where, unless you have got the lyrics, you could be forgiven for not knowing what he's actually saying. If the whole song was like that, it'd be too much. You know, right. it would just be ridiculous. Then it would be a Mr. Bungle track or something. So having the the longer vocal phrases over the verse, I think, really works and helps sort of make it more palatable and more uh, listenable. But yeah, really good track. Um, Martin's guitar, again, is really good in this, quite prominent in this track as well, actually, even though he's not yep. chugging. Um, the only thing I don't like is the ending, actually, which I think is a bit of a damp squib. I think it could have been more climactic. Um, you know, given the, as you say, the sort of anger that starts to come out in his voice when he's repeating, you still won't hear towards right. the end. Um, I would have liked something a bit more explosive at the end. But overall, yeah, really good track. Agreed. And leads into <laughs> a very strange track. Track 11, Crack Hitler. James Bondish. Uh, <laughs> James Bond yeah. is not the first thing that comes to mind when I hear this track. <laughs> this sort of waka waka guitar against a siren and these yeah, well, actually, yeah, the wah, and... the kind of wah element of the guitar, but just, uh, I mean, just the play on the James Bond theme, right? And the idea yeah, of like suppose, this, yeah. this, uh, you know, uh, adventurous life of the crack dealer right and and the empire that they have amassed and all this kind of stuff and and then when you throw in like the cheese of the you know uh keep up the fight and never give up like female background vocals in there and stuff like that like it's this is another one like very uh similar to be aggressive like very singable you know like very do you think um i think so <laughs> oh wow okay yeah i don't know this one for me is i mean yes it'd be a great it is a bit like be aggressive but also like rv as well in that it is very deliberately it's almost like it's meant to be 
you know, weird and a comedy and... Oh, uh, for sure. You know, n- ...not taken seriously and stuff. I don't think it's as successful as something like RV. Um, okay. It's, it's another one that I like in isolation. And I, I especially like that it's not yet another mid-tempo rocker because there are a lot of those on this album. Um, it does bring some good variety, but I, I think being right at the end of the album works against this. I think if it came sooner in the album, I might enjoy it more. But we're on track 11, <laughs> you know? I'm like, no, just move on. Come on, let's, let's get to the yeah. end now. I think I read somewhere, and I, I don't have it cited here, but I, I want to say that I read somewhere that this song in particular might have also been kind of making fun of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Oh, really? And they're, oh, and see, they're, now I like it more. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I might be, maybe this isn't, done, but it feels like it could be, just in terms of like the 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 way the bass is and the vocal delivery and stuff like that, I do, and just the absurdity of the whole thing, yeah. right? Um, I do think that I read that. Um, Anthony K. It is crack Hitler. You heard it here first. <laughs> and uh, and also that led me to kind of go and read through some of the back and forth that they had in the press at the time and stuff like that. Um, and just for that, it seems like the it was the epic video yeah. that made uh, Anthony Caides feel like they were getting ripped off by Faith No More. I don't think it was just the video. I think it was also his delivery on the verses. Well, yes, exactly. But yeah. it was that that when he saw that, right, he was like, "What?" Yeah. And then that sort of the the war of words began. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, he's kind of not wrong. Like on that particular track, in those particular sections, he really does sound as if he's almost doing a, a Chili Peppers, you know, par- pastiche but, or something. Um, and at the same time, like it when you think about how many bands think that they are the only ones that are doing their thing. That's true. And that someone else is ripping them off. It's become so laughable. Right. Um, well, I think the thing but, is it complaining about it just diminished the chili peppers. I think right. that, that's the thing yeah. is that like, I agree they're right, but they still shouldn't have said anything because it just diminishes them. It makes them look like they're whining. It makes them look small. Petty. Right, and you're taking one sample from a band's entire sound. Yeah, exactly. You know, especially a band like Faith No More, right? Which, Which um, as we've talked about, the sound is so, and pattern especially, is full of variety, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, far from the only, uh, you know, war of words in the press that happened between bands during, <laughs> you know, during, yeah, during knows, the eighties yeah. and nineties, you know, as far as, uh, but it, it's like the, it's like the, the Pepsi Cola or McDonald's Burger King thing. Like there's an oft stated rule. If you're number one, you don't even mention number two. You never complain about anything they do. Of course, they're going to emulate you because they're number right. two. You're number one. That's what they do. And the moment you acknowledge them, you diminish yourself because yeah. then you put into people's minds the idea that you are in competition rather than you being number one and untouchable and invincible. So yeah, it's just a rookie mistake, really. Enough of corporate marketing 101. <laughs> On to track 12, Jizzlobber.
things that I like about this song, the horror movie keyboard vibe. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, this song I feel like is one of those songs where, and it's a long song. It is. They're make they're deliberately making you endure this song. <laughs> like they're deliberately going against your expectations, and uh, and so I would say probably of all the songs on this album. There are elements of this song that I really, really like, but also maybe this is the only song to me that I feel like might overstay its welcome a little bit. No, I agree with you. I agree completely. Like, I love the guitar tone. Oh my God, there's a Slayer-esque. It's so good. Right. It is the thickest guitar tone on the album, for sure. It's almost like this one track, he plugged in a different amp or something compared to all the others. Um but as a song, I remember hearing this one when it came out because I remember everybody going, "Oh, listen to this! This is the heaviest track on the album." And uh, yeah, sort of. But you know, I don't know. I've just never really been into it. Like, I it is very definitely a metal song. It's got lots of semitone chord changes. It's got the thick guitar sound. It is a full-on metal track on an alt metal album, and I. I, I kind of hope that as a result, it brought a lot of their fans into more straight ahead metal, you know, yep. as a kind of as an entry point. So I commend it for that, but it is kind of underwhelming. It is almost seven minutes long and it just doesn't justify the length for me at all. And I knew it wouldn't for you because you're, you're even into less into long songs than me. I'm quite into <laughs> long songs, you know that, but they have to justify it. And I really don't think. The, I do like does. the whole I am what I've done, you know. Oh, again, just the lyrics, like the, I have no problem with the lyrics whatsoever. I'm talking just But just also that, like, overall. crushing, you know, repeatedness of that, like, I am what I've done, the way that the riff just kind of spiraled. Oh, so good. Yeah. So, like, there are elements of the song that I feel like are, and the the vocal delivery, holy moly, just in terms of, like, to go back to what you said, intensity, just, like, really good so yeah maybe at four minutes and 40 seconds right might have different liked it a story lot more. Yeah. yeah yeah different story no i agree um i mean and it's not even that there's the choir and organ bit at the end but that's only like 30 seconds um and, and i actually quite like that because it's so ridiculous <laughs> it's so out of place and just like you know over the top deliberately sure so i'm sure um, so it's not even that it's just, yeah, I, I think shave a couple of minutes out of the, somewhere out of the middle of the song and this would be better for it. Um, but I, like I say, I do appreciate that at least there is finally a full on metal track on this album. Yes. Um, I mean, this is brutally metal. Yeah. Yeah. Even though, like I say, I don't actually think it's as heavy as, um, uh, what was it? Malpractice. Um, but it is more metal. The malpractice. Yeah. There's another philosophical debate for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Bringing it back full circle. Uh, 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 track 13, then, which, as we said, of the original US release of the album was the final track in the album, and that is the theme from Midnight Cowboy.
I don't know that any other album I would love this here as I love it on this album. Well, just here. because it's such a contrast. Well, because I also like, and I think it was Billy that mentioned in an interview that like he had let a friend listen to the album when they were first putting it together, and the friend said the the first song and the last song are like taking a really great roller coaster ride, and this particular song, this you know instrumental um, cover is like at the end of the ride, like when the when the cart is like clicking back into place as it slows down at the end of the ride and you pull into like the where you get off of the roller coaster. Um, and that's kind of how they described this. And I do feel like, especially coming off of the thrashiness of the song before it, like this song just makes you like take a deep breath and just be for four minutes and 13 seconds. Like I, I kind of love it. Um, and I went back and listened to the original played on harmonica. Um, and it's it's just a really good song. And this song reminds me so much of Twin Peaks. So much. Like oh, it's, yeah, it reminds yeah. me so much of the Twin Peaks theme to go back to Battlementi. And inter- interestingly, on this tour for this album, there were two shows in 1993 that Faith No More played the theme to Twin Peaks as their outro huh. for the actual concert. Oh. Uh, in, let's see, it was April and May of 1993 in Australia and New Zealand. They had the Twin Peaks theme as the ending music for their show. And I just felt like, man, this this just feels very Twin Peaksy to me, which matched the vibe to me of the whole album and the, you know, thwarting expectations and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, I dug it as a as like a palate cleanser. I think the thwarting expectations is the main thing here because I mean, you know, it's fine. It it's not bad in any way. Um, it. I don't think it does anything particularly special with the the music, you know. Um, it's just like I say, it's fine. But yeah, ending your already weirdo album with this <laughs> is kind of on brand, like you know, delightfully on brand. It really shows that you that you're serious about like this isn't this album is not gonna be what your fans expect this album has not been what your fans expected and that kind of rounds things off i think because who the hell would have expected <laughs> a faith no more album to end with the cover of the theme from midnight cowboy you know really just absurd absolutely absurd and you could also see this being their outro music right as the house oh, lights come sure. up yeah. to their yeah. thing and they're walking off stage and you know uh, that's what i thought you were going to say at first was that they just sort of played this over the pa while they left <laughs> no it just had such a, a twin peaks vibe to me when i first heard it that um i was like wow yeah. and then i just did uh, happen to do a search on it and was like holy crap they did uh they did actually use the twin peaks theme that's but yeah crazy. like this one uh but as we said everywhere else outside the u.s and then when the u.s version was reissued the year later they added track 14 on and that is the cover of the commodore's easy
I mean, one of the best covers ever recorded. It's, uh, it is damn good, isn't it? It's so good. Like, it's so freaking good. He sings this song in such a heartfelt, but also, like, natural way that it just jumps into your ears. Like, it's so good. It's such a good cover. Yeah. I can't even... I can't say enough about what a good cover it is. I mean, like, it's a really good song. And the song. original is incredible. Yeah. So it's like, he's working with good source material here. But also, like, it feels appropriate to this album, and it feels, like, appropriate to Faith No More on this album, that this is the song that they're covering. Like, I don't know, man. It's just, like, a perfect choice. Yeah. Uh, well, also, if nothing else, it sh- it really shows off, and I think this is one of the reasons why it was so successful as a single. They are great musicians, and they can, they can play quote unquote regular stuff just as well as all this weirdo alt metal stuff. Patton's voice is fantastic on this. It really oh, shows so off how good a singer he is. I mean, it, it, Lionel Richie. One of the most celebrated singers in pop music, for heaven's sake. You know, that's who you're going to cover. And he, yep. and he pulls it off. He absolutely pulls it off. Pulls it off. Uh, with flying colors. like And Jim Martin's solo is really good. Again, Dude, it's just sort of yes. bluesy, soulful solo. Some of my favorite work of his on this entire album. Because again, much like Patton's delivery of the vocals on this song, the solo has such a like natural heartfelt feel to it. Yeah. It just sounds so good. Uh, yeah. And, and like, this goes back to, I don't know that I talked about this before, but there was one of the interviews um, where they talked about things being heavy. And I can't remember who was the one that said it. Did I put it on here? Oh, oh, here it is. I think it was, uh, so on the interview CD, as far as I can tell, they don't attribute who it is that's answering the actual question. So unless you know the voices of each of these guys really well, it's hard to pick out, like, who. Um, But I think it was Roddy that was talking about um, uh, Midnight Cowboy, but I think it applies to this as well. And he was saying, some of the softest music you hear, like on elevators, is some of the heaviest stuff. It's really profound and powerful in a way that rock can't be. Um, and I think that sentiment, right, of like 
even a song like Easy can be really heavy with the emotion that is put into it. Yep. And I feel that on this song. And I, I feel it on their cover of Midnight Cowboy too, but on this song, like as pleasant and melodic and light as the music itself is, there's a heaviness to the way that they do it because it's done so well. And yep. I think it just makes you appreciate it more. Well, that's what soul music is. That's what soul, soul and yeah. blues, yep. you know, are like, yeah, you know, often really sort of genuinely, generally fairly simple, melodic, pleasant things to listen to that if you actually, you know, take, pay attention to the lyrics and sort of think about them from an emotional standpoint are actually really fucking heavy and talking about really heavy issues, <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, I, I agree. It's a great cover. It's no surprise that it was such a huge hit. And like I said, to many people is still probably you ask them to name a faith, no more track. And this is what they will name even before midlife crisis or Epic, or something, it's, they'll say, oh yeah, easy. You know, I wonder how many people out there don't even realise it's a cover. I mean, Because by the time this was released, by the time this was released, the original was, I think, 15 years old. That's that's long enough for quite a few people to have probably never heard the original, I think. And I think another thing, too, in terms of, like, how well I think it fits on this album, is that, like a good closer does, this song makes me immediately want to start the whole album over again. It uh, really does. Uh, I'm not so sure about that. But honestly, I'm not sure what could, because this album is such a grab bag of different stuff. It is so completely all over the place, in a good way, but, but it is so inconsistent in its sound. I'm not sure anything could evoke the first two tracks in a way that would make you go, oh yeah, I want to listen to those again now. I, I I think this album just like there's an enchantment to it for me that I just want to just keep listening to it over and over again, <laughs> um, and have over you know especially the course of the last like week and a half been really just enamored with this album. I'm really happy. I'm really glad for you that you know that you've because uh, like I say I I was not expecting me to be the one who was more familiar <laughs> with Faith No More out of the two of us. So I'm really glad that you've got into this and found, you know, a sort of band who have a fairly, you know, extensive discography and rich history for you to dig into. Yeah. I and and really there's so much material from interviews to be dug into that I'm as excited for that as like digging into all the music stuff as well, just like the conversations that they've had. And uh, it's really great. But I'm, I am so happy that this album came up and that um, Jonathan has given me, Jonathan uh, really has given me a whole new appreciation for this band that I didn't have before. And I'm excited about that. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you again, Jonathan, for the nomination. Thank you again to everyone who did nominate and take part. You know, remember we do one of these every volume. So uh, yeah, you know, join the Patreon and your time will come. You'll get your chance. <laughs> Uh, absolutely but yeah so that was that was angel dust uh i think we went quite long there i don't know exactly how long this Shocker. episode's That's gonna turn out to me. but uh yeah this is definitely another one for everybody to consume over the holidays or on their long walks um thank you for listening everyone uh if you have enjoyed this show remember it really helps us if you spread the word uh, but also if you rate us on iTunes, the Google Play Podcast Store, Spotify, I think we're on Spotify now, you know, anywhere that you can leave, give us, uh, you know, a star rating or something, 
uh, please do because it does help. Um, you know, helps with their algorithms and all that sort of thing for other people to find us. And remember that if you want to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, if you want to get in touch, go to thrash it where there are links to uh, email, an email for, that reaches the both of us, and also our Twitter accounts for as long as however long Twitter still exists. Uh, <laughs> I might have to start changing that to Mastodon links or something soon. Um, and you can, of course, join the Facebook group. I don't think that's going anywhere at facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Well, I, I don't know. Not if not if virtual reality has anything to say about it. Oh, they might run out of money soon. God, Facebook could be. Don't don't even <laughs> get me started. <laughs> Man. All right. Homework. Uh, it that's is, a different podcast. Name. Yeah. Th- so next episode, because I chose uh, Rammstein before we had this uh, interlude with the listener choice. That was my choice. So it is your turn to pick an album. Brian, what are we going to talk about next time? Well, you know, this album came out in June of 1992, Angel Dust. So I said, I'm going to stick with the month of June. But let's go back a few years. Let's dial it back to June of 1987. Okay. And a little band by the name of White Lion, because we are going to listen to the second studio album from White Lion, Pride, as our next episode of Thrash It Out. Wow. Okay. Um, Can you guess what I'm going to say next? I don't even know who White Lion is, and I've never (laughs) heard of that album. (laughs) So I, you're not far off. Uh, I've certainly never heard of the album. I have heard of White Lion. I have never knowingly heard a single song by them. Well, White Lion features my features my favorite bass player, who is James Lomenzo, now currently of Megadeth, and uh, one of the greatest guitar players of all time, Vito Brada. Wait, was he so was he gonna... already your favorite bassist before he joined Megadeth? Or do, uh, or do people who join G- Megadeth just become your favorite bassist? No, 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 by no, default? no. <laughs> I loved James Lomenzo uh, from his White Lion days. He actually played with Zach Wilde's Black Label Society as well. Oh, okay. And then was brought in uh, years ago into Megadeth and now has rejoined Megadeth recently and is currently their permanent bassist. Uh, the revolving door of Megadeth musicians. <laughs> there you go. But uh, yeah, a different James Lomenzo here in the. Uh, in the early days with White Lion. So, yeah, White Lion's Pride. Wow. That's our... Uh, that will be our next that's episode. That's our next album. All right, well, Absolutely. yeah, I'd better go and grab a copy and start listening to it then, because like I say, yeah, I've never heard anything by White Lion before. I have no no expectations, no idea what, to, uh, what I'm about to let myself in for. I have no doubt you will absolutely love it, and you'll be saying the same thing about this album that I said about the Faith No More album that we just talked about, that you cannot believe that it's been this long, and that you are so excited to have discovered it now. Never in doubt. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right. Well, until then, everyone keep thrashing. Take care, everybody. As if anyone thought they were going to escape the 80s. They are not.